0: The Second Mission Foundation is a nonprofit organization that exists to educate, elevate, and advocate for members of America's service community in order to help them find their second mission after government service. Second Mission Foundation was created by and for the members of America's service community. That means members of the armed forces, first responders, security contractors, etc. Second Mission provides these veterans the opportunity for them to tell their stories, reach their goals, and make their voices heard. Through educational outreach, entrepreneurship support, and community involvement. For everything going on at Second Mission Foundation, go to Second Mission That's Second Mission Foundation, all one word, .org, Mission Foundation.org. Profiles and Havoc is a Havoc Journal podcast. The Havoc Journal seeks to serve as the voice of the veteran community through a focus on current affairs and articles of interest to the public in general and the veteran community in particular. Havoc Journal strives to offer timely, current, informative content. If you haven't been there in a while, go check it out. You owe it to yourself to see what's going on at HavocJournal.com. Read the most articulate, opinionated, thoughtful, and provocative veteran writers writing about the nation, the world, politics, national security, culture, fitness, movies, etc., etc., etc. list goes on and on and on. Havoc Journal is always expanding, always striving to improve their readers' experience. Check it out, havocjournal.com. That's havoc with a K, journal.com, havocjournal.com. My guest this week was Lori Gutierrez, who I've gotten to know more and more over the past, I don't know, year, year and a half, um, largely through the havoc community. Um, Lori, you know, I I don't want to say too much, but I also don't want to say too little in this intro. Uh, this was one of my favorite conversations that I've had so far on the show. Uh, literally, um, I laughed and cried during the episode. Uh, Lori is just—I'm uh, so impressed with her, um, with what she's done in her life, how she's dealt with uh, you know some pretty significant emotional events in her life, um, ones that I think a lot of people would take their hats off to, and she's handled them with grace and resilience and a toughness and a laughter and a humor, uh, that I really, really respect. I think, um, I think there's a lot of, it's just inspiring to see somebody that, that handles things as well as she does. Um, and that's me saying that I I think she, she, uh, you know, is, is very, um, (laughs) what's the right word? I I think she's, uh, more nonplussed with with her own efforts, um, as I guess a person is when they're living their lives and are privy to all of their thoughts. But from a third-person objective opinion, uh, I I think she is just an incredibly impressive person. And I'm so impressed with what she's been up to. A little bit, just some bullet points, so you guys know what you're about to get into. Um, Lori is a Navy combat veteran. Um, You know, did a tour in Afghanistan. Uh, She has gone on to uh, be a writer, Writing frequently at Havoc Journal, several other publications. She wrote a book called Gift from God um, about her, uh, you know, uh, mothering uh, an autistic child. And she, that's her daughter. And then her son has a terminal illness. Uh, as you will hear in the episode, he was supposed to live, uh, you know, he's given two years to live. He's now 14, um, which is a hell of a testament to Lori and, and what she's done as his mother. Uh, she's been a tireless advocate for Afghan and Iranian women, uh, especially in the wake of the withdrawal. And we talk about all this in the episode, so I don't want to give away too much now, but just really fascinating, heartfelt, interesting person. And as I say, <laughs> she's, she's fucking funny. Uh, she just really cracked me up. Uh, her, the, I, I think, you know, there's, uh, I mean, that's one of the things that's so always said, you know, about the Jews that they've survived so many horrific things because of their sense of humor, because they innately turn to humor as a coping mechanism. And uh, you know, we brought up a vet rep we talk about uh, all the time. Uh, you know, how Mel Brooks was a combat veteran, and Mel Brooks, you know, fought in the Battle of the Bulge and had every right to just write "No shit, there I was" stories, and instead, when he comes to World War II, he writes the producers. You know, uh, that's his take on Hitler. It's just, it's such a creative and healthy and resilient way of looking at traumatic circumstances. And I think uh, Lori, though she's Irish, not Jewish, uh, e- exemplifies a lot of that. And um, it was a pleasure to talk with her. And uh, yeah, I, I just had a blast talking about things. Okay, without further ado, let's light this rocket. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer, and this is Lori Boutier's profile in Havoc. All right. Welcome to the show, Lori.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Can I tell you something? I'm very, uh, I was like, oh, I was talking to somebody. I was like, oh, i have Lori Budieres on the show. And I was like, I'm really insecure about your last name. Every time I say it, I'm like, I'm pretty sure I'm mispronouncing it. B- Boutieres, Boutieres, butaris, Buteris. 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 Mm-hmm. It's,
1: similar, it's similar to Gutierrez, um, just with the B
0: and an S. Oh, okay. I wish I'd, okay. That makes me much more secure in saying it. <laughs> okay. Gotcha. Yeah. I was like, it was one of those things where it's like, I feel like such an asshole. Cause it's like, we've been talking for a while and I was like, I, really, I, I got to now ask her how to pronounce her name. I'm going to feel like a real schmuck. Doing that. No, I but, don't feel uh, bad. Uh it's one of those names. And that's is that that's not your maiden name, right? That's or is that no. your actual name? That's your married name.
1: That's my actual name. Or my, my <laughs> I can't even speak today. My <laughs> my married name, yes.
0: Your married name. I got you. Um, did you have to struggle with it? Was that an easy transition? No,
1: know? I was a struggle and even for my dad, my dad tried to convince my husband to take our name. He's was like, Don't you want a good Irish name, boy? <laughs> I can't even pronounce your name.
0: <laughs> what is it? <laughs> what is the name? What is it? No, no, what's what's butieras? What is it? Is, so, is that
1: so? So, I it was so my husband's father grandfather was adopted, so he just took his adopted father's name, and we don't even know like the, the background of that name. Like, when we tried to do research, you couldn't tell if it was Spanish or French. Like, I don't we don't really what? know where it comes from, yeah. It's
0: crazy, no wonder your dad wanted him to take your name, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my god, wow, okay. How long have you guys been married now? 20 years, 20 years. So you, yeah. you get retirement now. You get a pension, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, he's still active duty. He's still trucking along. So,
0: and how long has he been in now?
1: So a little over twenty, like twenty-one.
0: Wow. What? And how much longer is he going to be in?
1: Probably as long as possible with our son's disabilities and the sure. insurance and just the, the unstable economy. Like it's just it seems like the safest option.
0: Yeah, let's let's talk about that. You know, I'm amazed how much you share on social. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, and I'm not saying that in any sort of shaming way, I'm, I'm impressed and touched. And, uh, it's, I mean, I'm, my hat is fucking off to you. I'm like the amount of knowing what you've done in life and then knowing how much you still continue to do the amount of, um, love and care and all that, that you pour into your family. And especially with PCS moves and all that, I I was like I was wincing. I was like, ah, oh, man, they're making their PCS. Oh my god, that's hell. Um, does it feel like a normal battle rhythm to you now? Does everything feel? Do you? Is it always rocky, or is it there's a stability that you kind of reach and a normalcy that you reach with it?
1: There is normalcy. Like you adapt, and um, it just becomes your new normal. These these lives. Mm-hmm um, challenges. However, since moving back to Florida, we were originally from Florida. My husband and I both enlisted from Florida and then mm. we've been gone this entire time. So we, uh, almost a year it will be that we've been back in Florida, but we just got a house like a month ago. So we've been pre- pretty much homeless. Uh, so we're still trying to establish our new normal here in Florida and we haven't quite gotten there yet. Um, so it just feels, um, very odd. You know what I mean? Like just nothing's yeah. level. You're just kind of rolling with the punches, figuring things out as you go. So that's kind of that's the sucky part, at least current situation. But in regards to just life in general, you do adapt like most things in life, you know. Um people go, oh, I can't I don't know how you do it. You just do.
0: Yeah, sure. <laughs> you don't sure. have a choice. You know what I mean? Like But you also find a strength that you may that others may not find in themselves, right? Because you just kind of are used to lifting more weight in a lot of ways, right?
1: Uh, yeah. I mean, my parents were both military, uh, both Navy themselves. So growing up, it was constant change, constant having to, um, make new friends, figure mm. out the next scenario. And it was hard for them. We didn't have family around to support us. So we became our own, you know, um, well, I, I can't think of the word. I apologize, but, uh, own
0: unit basically. Yeah. Yeah. Family was
1: like everything, you know? Yeah. And so, um,
0: did you have sisters or brothers?
1: I have, I have two sisters and three brothers. I'm the middle girl. So I'm the second oldest, but the middle girl. And then my, my brothers are younger.
0: Wow. So since you didn't have extended family around, they really built out the tribe inside the house.
2: They That's sure did. Kids.
0: Man, mm-hmm. what was that like growing up in a house with that many kids? Did you know your place or were you kind of fighting for? Seat at the table a lot. What was that like?
1: No, I mean we were very close, just because, like I said, we only had each other. We fought. Don't get me wrong. Right. We're Irish. We had tempers. You know what I mean? Like, right. A very passionate family. We love hard. We fight hard. You know, it's just it was chaos all the time. But I thrive in chaos. Like I can really rock that. Um, my siblings, not so much. Moving was hard for them. Making friends was hard for them. I'm just not a private person. Not a quiet person. So I've not had that problem mm. um, adapting as much as they did. So when my mom got sent to Florida for set that's where she finally retired from. Mm. Um, my siblings really just dug roots and they've been here ever since. Like they didn't leave oh, wow. once we, wow. my mom and dad got stationed here.
0: Did they, any of them join the military? Or were you they i the not
1: one? the only one. Really? Yeah.
0: Why is that? Do you think?
1: I think they just hated the lifestyle and it just wasn't oh. for them. I loved it. I dreamed about it since I was a little girl, you know? And my dad's like, as long as you don't join the Marine Corps, you're not a bull dyke. I won't allow that. You know, I'm like, nice, dad. Real freaking nice.
0: <laughs> but yeah. wait, wait. Uh, did you, so did you know that, uh, did you enlist coming out of high school? Is that what I did. Was? And did you, I didn't know. What was the plan?
1: I I always wanted to join. I First, I thought the army, like forever. It was army, army, army. My parents were okay. both Navy. And then I met my husband in high school. So it was my junior year, his senior year. And he was going into the Marine Corps. And so I just thought we would date in high school and then, you know, we'd go our separate ways. But then he asked me to stay with him. I'm like, um, yeah, I guess I can't. <laughs> so, so I did. And then I started looking for service, like other, um, branches of the service that work with Marines. And so it wound up just going Navy as well and, and picking corpsman, um, because I could get stationed with him. Didn't really know what a corpsman was, had no great pull for the medical field. And when I got to a school, was like, Oh shit. You know? <laughs> wow. Ah, <laughs> uh, wow. this is more than I've. I don't thought it would be, you know? So
0: what did you wanted to do in the military before that, before you ended up going uh, into the Navy as a corpsman? Did you want to be a ground pounder in the army? Like what, what was I your did. aspiration? Yeah. You know? okay.
1: I did. When GI Jane came out, I think I was yeah. in high school. I was like, I love this. You know?
0: like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: But it was just, and I, you know, I read all these, um, romance novels and things. And I just had this very rosy Vision of like what life would be like as an adult and in the military and this independent a, woman, you know, like it was just
0: that that's an untapped recruiting market. The romance novel uh, uh. Uh, yeah, poll of the, of the military, the lure of the military through romance novels. That's a, so I mean, so that was a major shift then going, hey, I'm going to go into the Navy where I'm not 100 percent clear on the jobs, being that you had kind of had this one image of what you wanted your military career to look like. Right
1: yeah that i really honest to god like shame on me but i really never looked into it like the research was there i could have asked the questions i could have done the reading yeah. i did not i just wanted to get the hell out of the way from home you know one, that's a lot of people in one house eight people yeah. was not ready for college just wanted to be gone
0: gotcha.
1: and um, i left on my dad's birthday i was like happy birthday one wow. down five more to go you know like i'm out of here
0: what did your parents say when oh, you joined the my navy
1: mom was not happy because i i've mentioned in previous um Posted talk and conversations how she was like my hero i I liked her and she thought i was she thought i was stupid (laughs) she just couldn't and she said that like i was so shocked that she said that um but i just don't think she could see what i saw her strength the way she accomplished things i mean she was just awe-inspiring and she was a rock and she and she grew up in a time in the military too like it was i mean you talk about male-dominated field like there really weren't any women like when she was in and I mean, she not only served for 20 some odd years, she, she went from enlisted to officer. She um, raised six kids and so she didn't just come home and just relax. I mean, she made home cooked meals every night. She ironed all the clothes. She helped us with our homework. She wasn't a very affectionate person, but she read us be- like bedtime stories. And she just, she did her best, you know, and you saw that in, in every aspect. And she just was so hardworking. My dad was too, obviously, but different in different ways. Um, and but um because she was my female role model. So I wanted to, to join yeah. like her. So she was not like she went with me, to recruiters because I, I uh enlisted really, like, I depth in at mm-hmm. 17 and she asked all the hard questions. I just like was content to sit back and let my mom <laughs> ask the hard questions and just trusted it all would work out, <laughs> right? Like the grown-ups are talking, you know. I can tap out right now.
0: So you <laughs> so you didn't spring this on her. I mean, she was very much a part of that process then.
1: Yes, yes. And so uh they were not thrilled that they didn't want to stop me either from pursuing a life outside of home. Uh, and not to say that they were hands off of my career. My dad called my my uh drill instructor, uh RDC is what we called him in the navy, but like he called in boot camp and I got got reamed and beat mercilessly for that phone call cuz he was calling to check on me and make sure, you know, they were handling me properly or whatever. Like just check it in. I'm like, "Why would you do that?" My mom did the same thing when I was in field med. They had the command master chief call me into his office, asking who Lieutenant Flynn was, thinking she was some type of you know intel officer or whatever. Like he didn't know who she was. He was scared. I was so mortified, you know.
0: That's hilarious. What what did your What did your dad do in the in the What did your dad and your mom do? What were their jobs?
1: Back in the day, they were both radio men, and then it switched. I think to IT maybe. Okay. Um. And then my mom, when she was commissioned, she uh, wanted to do communications. Okay.
0: All right. And then they retired, I'm assuming, before the GWAT, right? Correct. Okay. So when did you enlist?
1: So I enlisted in 2000 before it as well.
0: Oh, did you? Okay.
1: Yeah.
0: So, wow. All right. So that was a very different... Uh, well, it's interesting that they were that against it even in peacetime. They're like, no... <laughs> Hey, you're dumb for fucking doing that just yeah, in general, even without a war going on. Um, so, when 9 11 happened, where were you?
1: So, I was stationed at Jacksonville, uh, in Jacksonville, Florida, at the Naval Hospital there. I worked labor and delivery. And I had just gotten done working a 12 hour shift. I'd gotten home, was in bed, and I had like my phone just started ringing off the hook. I'm like, what? What do you people want? I'm trying to sleep, you know, yeah, like yeah, turn, yeah. On the, turn on the TV. And so, that's when I was first, you know, made aware of what was going on. And basically it was just stand down, just wait to be told. Everything's locked down. Uh just stay where you are. Don't do anything. You know, we'll let you know what we need you to do next.
0: What was your head like? Were you like, holy shit, I'm gonna be in a wartime military now? No, oh, didn't even occur to me. Like at all. Totally really. Didn't
1: at all phase me. Like I didn't think anything of it beyond I was sad and I couldn't believe this was happening. But like the implications of that went right over my head. I just because I went from like working in the hospital is very much like a being yeah. a civilian still, like yeah. you know, yeah. it's not very military. Yeah, and so I still hadn't really had a taste of that, other than boot camp and ASL, right? Like, I worked labor and delivery for two years. It was real chill. I loved the job, but it was very much just you know, simple. I, you know, I had these high expectations of doing good and and what I was doing at the at the hospital.
0: Did you think prior to 9-11, were you thinking that this was going to be your career? Were you like, this is, the, I'm not just learning a, a skill, but this is something I'm going to be doing here in the military for next 20 years? Or was it yes. taking one step at a time?
1: No, I loved it. So once I finally, you know, got in to, you know, understanding like <laughs> the full aspects of my job, I, and realized, Oh, I really have a a, a calling. Like, I really like this. Like mm. I enjoy taking care of people and mm. I, I love the technicality of it. I love the orderliness of it. Like I love being part of something bigger than myself. You know, when you're helping somebody mm-hmm. like that really meant a lot to me. And so I really enjoyed it and had no intention of ever getting out. <laughs> I was going to be a lifer.
0: Well, I, I don't want to I, I realized I just skipped over something. I really wanted to double down into how is it working out with your husband? Were you able to be stationed and co-located together? Was that working out well, or did the military, the DOD have different plans for you guys? So
1: we didn't get married until 2002. So we had that two-year stretch where we were separated. So okay. he got stationed in Jacksonville, North Carolina, and eventually he got sent to Germany. I got stationed in um, Jacksonville, Florida. So we did the where well, I would travel to see him because he had a motorcycle. <laughs> so I would drive to go see him on the weekends and stuff. You know, long distance sure. was hard. You know, rack up like five hundred dollar phone cards, like yeah. in phone cards. I got a passport to go see him. Like it was really hard, but we we committed and we did it. We wrote letters all the time, okay. like when he deployed. Um, so we, when we finally got married and we lived together, we only lived together seven months, but not consecutively. It wasn't until after I got out and we moved to Hawaii and we actually lived together that we were like, Oh my God, like this sucks <laughs> Like having to cohabitate with somebody, you know, and get used wow. to, we had not gotten used to each other, even wow. though we've been married three years at that point.
0: So that's crazy. So, um, I, I guess I should have asked that in chronological order, but that's, that's a heck of a thing that you i mean you would i don't want to make too much of it but i mean you definitely had shifted your career ambitions to go from army and this perception of ground pounding to the navy and now you're working in a hospital setting but you guys aren't even to get like it's it's not even playing out like dude were you disappointed were you like oh man i should have planned ahead for that that's on me or were you or, or were you totally cool with the fact like oh yeah well we weren't married and right the DOD is going to do whatever dod does
1: Exactly. So I was just like, oh, well, it is what it is. Huh. Uh, what's next? What's next steps? How can we, you know, move forward? And that's kind of always in my mentality. When I got a problem, I'm like, okay, well, that sucks. Now what? And then,
0: yeah. you know, thriving I, in chaos.
1: I really do. Yeah. And so it worked for me and I just made it work.
0: So did he, would did he deploy right after nine eleven?
1: So he, I don't know when he, He, I know he's with the 20, um, 24th Mew, and I went right after him. So I, I deployed in two thousand through
0: 2004
1: let me double check because I'm exhausted and my brain's not functioning let me just double check yeah I know you've written
0: about it a whole bunch yeah I know I should know at this point yeah yeah so I did it in
1: 2004 so he must have deployed in 2003
0: okay so um when did things so let's go back to after 9-11 immediately after first off um what was your conversations like with him was there any sense of trepidation was that excitement was he g'd up? Were you g'd up for him? Uh, was you starting to wrap your mind around the fact that you were maybe going to have to get involved in uh, outside of the hospital? Like, what was? What were the conversations like between you guys after that?
1: Well, my husband was real like. That's what he joined the Marine Corps for. Like, yeah. he was loving yeah. like this was like his thing. And when he deployed, he was like big visions of valor and like war. And, and the funny thing is, he never saw combat.
2: Huh. Yeah.
1: so that wasn't um he did go into iraq and i think he like did the workups in albania but as far as i know like it was pretty you know easy deployment came back on time didn't get extended there's you know what i mean and i want to downplay his story i don't know exactly all the ins and outs no of yeah it. yeah but um and i was like you no know, i him like bunches of care packages really had fun sending in care packages and writing them letters like it was like this is great like you know how romantic or whatever I feel like such an airhead. Like looking back when I tell us I tell these stories, like it's not very impressive.
0: Right? Okay. <laughs> no, you but you know what I'm But but it shows some resilience because it's like when you're when you're not thinking about it, navel gazing that much, and you're just kind of like, yeah, all right, cool, yeah. we're doing this now. I mean, man, it, it puts you in a good headspace to be able to cope with whatever comes.
1: Yeah, I was always happy, pretty laid back, you know, <laughs> you know, just I. You know, that young and dumb really applied to me. I just was so naive and always in the clouds. And <laughs> you know, like,
0: oh, <laughs> oh, totally. The, yeah. I, yeah,
1: that annoyed the crap out of the guys when I was in the field with them. Like, Doc, why are you always smiling? You're getting on our fucking nerves. <laughs> I was like, well, this is like a once in a lifetime experience for me.
0: <laughs> oh my God. That's so funny.
1: <laughs> never that's do this ridiculous. again. Ridiculous. You know? Uh huh. Oh, I'm just so happy.
0: You, yeah. So, what was that? What's that transition like? How does the Navy manage that to get you from? What was it? Prenatal care to to field med, like and supporting a line unit. What, how does that happen? Was that so you raising order, your hand, or was was that the Navy yeah. making that decision?
1: So as the Navy, I like I did want orders to North Carolina, and it was very few. It was field med. <laughs> so, at this, because now like things are happening, like they need bodies, and so I was like, well, I guess it shouldn't be that bad. It's just another school, you know. I was not prepared. Okay. We did not maintain weight standards in the hospital like you do in the field. Like I could swim for my PRTs and I was great at floating and I was great at like pushing off the wall. And like, I didn't have to do like, a, like I'm not a swimmer. Like I all thought I was drowning. Cause I just had to do what I had to do to get from point A to point B back and forth. Like I'm doing side paddle, back paddle to the front. Like y'all thought I was going to drown because I, am not a very good swimmer, but I passed. Right. So then I, so I get orders to field men. I'm like, they can't do that bad. Oh my gosh. It was a nightmare. And I was not within weight standards and just the physical readiness and, and the whole, the mentality for field meds, switch from, you know, hospital medicine to field medicine. And I'm like, well, when you talk triage and how you care for patients and then having to learn about, uh, the Marine Corps, the battalions, the companies, the squads, squad formations, like digging fighting holds and land nav. I totally failed the land nav. They just told me to hold the, the, the uh, the map, just hold the map, Lord. <laughs> just hold the map, you know, like, oh, my God. I stepped, like, in a pile of, uh, like, I guess, was it Yellow Jackets? that buried their nest in the ground. Stepped in a freaking nest that was getting chased and screaming. I'm like, shut up. You're going to get her a position away. I'm like, I don't care. I'm like, running, you know. <sighs> I have, like, so many stories like this where it's just a mess. <laughs> I wonder, and unfortunately, having to go through field med twice just because I just was not ready. It was one of my biggest embarrassments. Um, professionally, because I just, I'm such like, I am a hard worker and I will do what I have to do as much as I joke and make fun yeah, of myself. Sure, like, sure. like I love to excel. I love to be good at whatever I'm doing. So that was like my first, like real, like form of rejection. And like, oh my gosh, like this is, this is obviously important, but you know, they kept telling me, you're a woman, you're never going to have to do this. Just learn the stuff, get through the hikes or the humps, whatever you want to call them. And you'll be fine. You know, once you get to your company your command your next command
0: were you the only woman in your iteration in in, in the schoolhouse or were there a lot of women no, there?
1: there were a lot of other women a lot of them didn't even pass like i i know i was overweight okay. but and some of them were a lot skinnier than me but like they just it's a mental thing right when you're going on these because yeah. they don't tell you how much further it's going to be like there's the constant yelling the lack of sleep the humping around in wet clothes just it's just a lot of you know I'm sorry, I keep cussing, but like
0: no, no, you're good. Yeah. Okay,
1: you know a lot of these these games that are played, and um, and so you just you're a mess mentally, and so they just couldn't. So a lot of them dropped out. So there's only a handful of us that even passed.
0: If you had to think of the ratio, what was it? Was it one in ten, one in five? What was the female to male ratio in the schoolhouse?
1: I yeah, one in five probably.
0: One in five. Was there? Did you get the sense that they were trying to find women corpsmen so that they could, because they knew there might be specific assignments for them, or they were even thinking about the CST teams or anything like that? Or was that not a thing? No, okay. that wasn't
1: even a thing yet right. uh, yeah. in 2004, right? 2003, 2004. Um, and so it was just, don't worry. Even the instructors were like, just get through this. You know, you'll be fine. Just you learn what you're going to learn. And then you can just do a data dump. And I absolutely did. Like, absolutely did. And that came to bite me in the butt when I actually got into Afghanistan and I went out on patrol with the squad and they're doing their, like, their hand signals. I'm like, what the fuck are they (laughs) saying? Right? So I'm like trying to watch and see, like, where they're breaking apart at. So i can like, what side do I go? You know, like, where do I go?
0: Oh, my God. What did you think you were going to do? What did you, when you were at the schoolhouse, what did where did you think you were going to end up?
1: At a clinic, at a, at a, at the, in the rear, like at a hospital, like, you know what I mean? In like Kandahar, chilling on the base.
0: So you thought this was just a necessary tick-the-box school? Yes. So, you, okay, gotcha. Yes, like, yes, was, and I did. Was this supposed to be necessary for you to be deployed? Was this like a, no. a- Okay.
1: So I got, I get out of field med, I go to a second med battalion, I'm in the company there, we're just running around, and just doing, you know- random shit wasn't even medical stuff it was just i can't even tell you what we did because it was so insignificant we felt like we just wasted our days doing nothing I wasn't at the clinic i was just you know med battalion and then all of a sudden i get called to the office and they're like hey so we you have to replace a lady who um one of the female corpsmen who has like a i think she got ovarian cancer or something we're deploying next week to afghanistan i'm like what so i did none of the workups nothing at all so they and i'm replacing this woman who's been doing this, I want to say, for half a year, if not more, you know, for all these different workups. With a line unit,
0: with yeah. with the actual, oh, wow.
1: Holy shit. So, oh, no, not with line unit. No, no, I'm sorry. Um, so, so, second FSG was the, who we were attached to, second med battalion, and then so we were still just doing, like, support. Okay. And so we would, we would do at the hospital there in Kandahar or whatever. But, okay. but the point is, you're still going to a war zone. And I was sure. not prepared for that, because I thought, really, I'd stay at Lejeune and serve in that capacity. So when I got station, um, or not station, orders to, to you, I was like, oh my word, what did I get into? I only did like one, one specific training. That was when you go to the pool, they put you in that uh, helicopter simulator underwater. Have you yeah. ever done that?
2: Yeah. yeah. I was to yeah. around. Yeah. And I
1: could not pop out the window, could not beat on the crap on this window, couldn't pop the window. They had to like release me. Then you have to like hang upside down in the pool and breathe out of a, uh, what is it? Respirator. Um, you know, well, uh, yeah.
0: Like a little scuba, like a, a internal uh, yes. breather. Yeah,
1: <laughs> freaked out. Tried to get out. Snapped my nose in the side of the pool. Blood everywhere in the water. So they're like, "Booty," because they call me Booty because they couldn't pronounce my last name. I'm like, "Booty, you're just going to die, okay? So if you land the helicopter crashes, you're just going to die." am like, "Fair enough. Get me out of the pool." Like, noted. I was done. So I didn't even pass that. Like I'm like I was just I was a mess, and that I missed is- like on.
0: So Sorry, I, no, go ahead. No, no, go ahead.
1: Yeah, I get on ship. I'm an, I'm a sailor. Could not read how to walk around the ship because, again, I never thought I'd be on a ship that I'd be in the hospital, right? Like, so forgot, forgot how to navigate a ship. Oh, my gosh. Like, and I'm <laughs> on this massive LHG-1, and I'm just like, they had already been on the ship multiple times for different workups and stuff, so they're all, like, do, going to their birthing and departments and just, you know, going. And I'm just like, um, excuse me.
0: <laughs> That's so goddamn funny. Okay. Oh my God. Maybe I'm doing too much stuff with that rep, but I got to think there's like three or four comedies in that in everything you've oh. said so far. That's so goddamn funny. Oh my God. Yeah. that Well, and what's hilarious is that you keep, you you keep uh, failing forward. I mean, like it's not yeah. pushing you to the rear. You're you, you keep pushing on. So look, before I jump into the deployment itself, what was the reaction? What was the reaction from your, well, I guess he was your husband at this point, right? How did he feel about you getting forward deployed? How did your parents feel about you getting forward deployed? Was everybody going awesome? Totally got it. Or did they have any indication they were like, "Hey, Lori, you know, tighten your shop group"? Like, what, what was there? Any, what, what was the reaction that you were getting from people around you?
1: Um, so my parents, you know, they didn't say too much. about it. Not anything at all, which is surprising. You'd think they would have a whole lot to say. Mm. They didn't. Um, my husband and I had confessed like right before I was like, I finally got anxiety, like right before we were shipping out and he just got back in deployment. Really. I think we only had like a couple weeks together, maybe. Um, it what sort it of felt like. I don't know the reality of it, but it was a mm. short time yeah. um, in between his deployment and my deployment. And I was laying in his arms one night. I was like, you know, I'm actually really scared. <laughs> I'm actually really scared. And I'm terrified of going to this war zone. And he, he patted me on the head and he hates when I tell the story, but he patted me on the head and he's like, you know and I don't think he meant to be condescending but it did come across like don't worry women never see combat you're going to be safe what a bull bull you know bs i was so mad at him i wrote him a lengthy letter
0: <laughs> once i got there what so um did that did you have a chip on your shoulder about that were you was there part of you that was like yeah. I, I want to push as close to the front as possible. I want to, I want to get in the shit a little bit.
1: I did not until we got pulled into like, we were, let's see, we could land in April, like mid like April 20th or so. So we landed like April 1st or something in Kandahar, And by like April 20th, we got pulled into this big meeting, all the women with me. So, um, Hey guys, guess what? <laughs> We're gonna select a handful of you, about twelve of you, to go out with the BLT16, and you're gonna act as female searchers. You're not gonna do your MOS. You're right. You're gonna be female searchers, and our goal is to win the hearts, the minds of the locals by you adhering to the customs and courtesies. So this is what you will be doing, you know, and we'll let you know. And so, um, it was. That's when I finally got felt my first rush, and like this is real. What if I get selected? Like. And they kept going on. This would be the first time women have ever been embedded with a combat, like officially, yeah. this is 2004, yeah. mind you, with well, right. a combat infantry unit, you're going into the field. You're not out of FOB. You're going to be hunting, humping around the mountains, driving, you know, flying helicopters, like all the, all the whole nine yards, you know, it was terrifying, but just thinking and hearing all the weather women talk, some women started crying. I didn't start crying. I think I just kind of like was shocked and just, <laughs> you know, like this is really happening. Uh, and so I was listening and trying to comfort the ones that were crying. I just um processing what was going on, and then it occurred to me, like I'm like, I can't, I can't be the weakest like I can't. Mm. I mean, I'm a shit show. Don't get me wrong. I'm good at <laughs> I'm good at starting IVs. I'm good at patient care. Like I'm good at my job. But like, right. <laughs> I'm constantly getting yelled at for my unprofessionalism because you know everybody's honey, darling, baby. Because I can't read name tapes. I'm blind. But I refuse to get glasses because I'm also vain, right? So I can't read your name tape. Like, like. So I'm my unprofessionalism with patients, you know. Oh, it's okay, baby. I got you. You know that kind of thing. Like this doesn't really flow with brains. But uh, I was like, I can't, like, I can't fail at this if I get picked. Like, I can't come up short. I because if I come up short, then every woman comes up short. Like sure. they, you really do get judged as a majority. Mm, it just course. is the way it is. And so I was like, Oh Lord Jesus, please don't let me, don't let me be a joke, don't let me. Let these women down. Don't let me let the company down. Uh, you know, I got a job to do. Let me do this job equally well.
0: What did that mean then? What did you have to how could you tighten up your shock group? Was there stuff you I mean, was it a matter of going and picking somebody's brains? Because at this point, you're already out there. There's no pre at this point. So what do you do to get smart it was hard because I
1: was such an outcast because I didn't do all the workups, I hadn't built those relationships. I, you know, my knowledge of the Marine corps is very generic a lot of it was like beep, like you know dump mm-hmm. when I I, I just done field meant so you would think it'd be really fresh. No, not so much. I was like, don't need this. You know, like <laughs> oh so I just was really out of my element and just kind of like floundering in the water, just kind of keep my head afloat. I just it was very hard to make friends. Women in general are hard to be friends in the military. Mm-hmm. Just they're just the relationships are not the same as the men that the men have, you know? Sure. And so I didn't really have anyone to turn to. And so I just like, okay, let us just see what's gonna go next and take what I can. Like I was like a sponge, just absorbing everything that I could at that point. Like I wasn't so in the clouds anymore. I was really trying to take in and I started journaling and trying to write things down. My memory is garbage. Mm. Um, so I could just stay focused and and do what I had to do. And so unfortunately, I only when we talked training for being a female searcher, it was one day or one not even day, like a class of how to search a body. <laughs> From head to toe right and here's the credit card swipe and make sure you know you do all these other now you're good it's like oh okay but not not how you're what to do within the company like what like um standing watch going on patrols have like, none of that was expected of us like nobody wanted to talk with us like because these men have never worked with women they didn't know how to incorporate us into their jobs because we hadn't trained together like it was very, and then they didn't pass information to us. Like they passed to the rest, like guys would, you know, form up and we didn't want part of formation. Like we really were kept in the dark, about where we were, what was going on, just say, Hey, follow us. We're going to go to this village. Okay. Now you come here, you go in there. It was just like, okay, <laughs> where, it was hard. It was, it was, was hard. this
0: Helmand. Where were you? In, in- yeah.
1: So I have my great, um, so right like, we flew, let's see. So we flew into the mountains. It was, it was a hard to uh hard to reach. You couldn't get there by vehicle, like where we flew. Okay. And I'm trying to think of the because again, they didn't really tell me. I had no, I didn't know half the shit I know now about my my deployment until I was reading up on other
2: wow. other
1: people's uh, write-ups after the fact, like years after the fact. Wow. Um so yeah. So you're so not sure now, where you
0: where you ended up in the country.
1: No, like I have the grid coordinates and I know that like some of these places, like and I tried Googling them. Um uh, like so here, mountains of Afghanistan. <laughs> Don't know. They, they called it Walton's Mountain, aka the bowl. Like so we had nicknames for these places, but I, again, like I didn't know what that was, where that was. Um I wound up getting like later on when so there was an incident when the first the 12 women we got you know deployed with a BLT16. And then we were separated into different companies. And then we were, you know, told to follow along and and just do exactly what the guys were doing. It was fine. Like not a big deal. But I think some of the women had unrealistic expectations of what that would look like. And so they they didn't come prepared. They didn't bring enough feminine products out. They didn't bring enough Mm -hmm. meds out because you know how it is in the military. A 10-day off is never just a 10-day off. Like you have the risk of being extended. Things change. And that is exactly what happened. It was supposed to be a 10-day mission and we got extended out into the field. Well, one of the women um, wind up having a medical issue because she didn't have her thyroid medicine. Mm. She had to be flown out. And when she got back to the fob, she was complaining of how cold it was and the lack of food and the hunger and then the the lack of sleep, you know, because you're doing night operations too. You're humping from point A to point B in the middle of the freaking night, you know? And so just going on and on about how horrible it was. And so they took it as abuse, like the higher ups. And they wanted to pull all the women out of the field. And uh, the CEO of the BLT was like, no, you can't do that. Like we have to have them for this operation. Like it's a must. So they had to request at least six women to stay behind for volunteers, but that created a huge rift with the guys, right? Cause they've been doing their best to mind their manners, to do nothing wrong. They asked nothing right. of us. Like, right. so I stayed behind with, um, you know, five other women. And I went to a whole new company, which sucks. Cause at least Charlie company knew me and we bonded and they knew I wasn't the one complaining. But when I got right. to the Alpha the company, it was a whole different mood sure. and atmosphere. And they we were resentful. They we were angry. I mean, I had one guy who did uh, like during a day, like, you know, it gets to 120 degrees during the day and we're humping like, I don't know. It's like uh, nine miles or something. It was something ridiculous. Right. Over these mountainous terrains, And, um, he wouldn't let me, he went up going down. I don't know. It was heat exhaustion, heat stroke. I can't remember which one, but he would not let me touch him as a, cause as a corpsman, like you want to help, like, you yeah, know, right. I'm there as a female searcher, but like I can help you. And that he was, don't touch me, stay the hell away from me. And that was very much the mentality of everybody there. Like don't even look at me. So it took some time to win their trust and, and then to, to them not to be so angry at, uh, at us.
0: I know we've talked about this before, On this show, I think, but just, especially now with having this fully fleshed out context, how was it with the other women? How did you feel you were stacking up with them? How were the relationships? How was the bonding or lack thereof? And how was the professionalism? How was the skill set? How did you think you were measuring up compared to the other females?
1: So I honestly didn't really compare myself. I just, we were in it together and we just tried to, um, Figure out what our roles were because again, I wasn't the only one in the dark. We were all in the dark, and then how to how to live in the field because we didn't be training like on how to go to the bathroom. <laughs> like I had to drop trial in the front of the whole company because we were at this point we we're doing a convoy from one destination to another destination. Don't ask me where I don't know. All I know is we were in the vehicle and then we had to stop because there's an IED. So they had to call an EOD while we were waiting for EOD to come. I'm like, I really have to go pee like so freaking bad, and they're like, well. You better hold it. I'm like, I'm going to pee all over this car if you don't let me go somewhere. So like the doc, you can't, you can't like stray from the vehicle. So I had to get down like, like really walk around the edge of the car and get to where the wheel is and squat right in front of the wheel, bare ass, hanging out, and all peeing around the wheel. Everybody's leaning over watching. I'm like, I'm just going to look up at the sky and like hold my pants. So I'm not peeing on my pants and just pretend you're not watching me pee. So modesty goes out the window. You just can't have that in the field. Yes, it's just, yeah. you know?
0: How were you feeling mentally? Did you feel like you were, I mean, talking about thriving in chaos, did you feel like you were thriving in chaos? Did you feel like you were, was this too big a boulder to push up the mountain? Like, where were you at?
1: I was still, I was a comic relief for the group still. Like, I lost my belt buckle peeing down the side of the mountain one night. All you hear is clink, 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 clink. I'm like, oh shit. You know, there goes my belt. So then I used a cravat to hold my pants up, you know? And then my my helmet broke, so they had to zip tie my helmet. And they're like, Doc, you were such a mess. You know, and then I had no upper arm strength. So when you're trying to haul yourself up into the seven time with all your, you know, you throw your shit up and then you try to haul yourself yeah. up with you your flak on your helmet. I couldn't do it. then I had to scale the wheel and shimmy along the edge to get into the back. And by the time I'm in the back, I'm hanging out the I am the last to get in because it took me so long. And then they're like, well, will just hold, you have to sit on the edge. And then they had me hold one of a – it's it, a mortar, like a big tube. You know what I'm talking about this uh, for one of the rounds. What is it called? I think so. Like, Doc, you get to hold on to this because you're the last one in. So I'm sitting with my feet hanging out of the truck, holding this big round. Somebody's got the back of my flack. My he- my helmet's flapping everywhere because it's zip tied on, and it's just like, oh
0: my fucking god!
1: Oh, yeah, so such, funny. It's such a shit show. my like, Doc, you were like a negative 100 cool points, just so you know. And then when I get out of the seven-ton, I fall every time because I I just can't land on my feet. Like I just flat hit the deck.
2: It's,
0: were you, but it's, I mean, oh, look, I, I'm I'm projecting. I know you, we've got almost 20 years between these events. So it, It. you get a lot of perspective then, but it seems like you were pretty resilient about it though. Like you weren't beating yourself I, yeah. up too much. Did you just laugh? No, I, yeah.
1: I just laughed and just said, okay, pick myself up, dust myself off and move on to the next thing, you know? And I just made sure again, that I stayed out of the way. I didn't cause trouble. Like I just did what I had to do. I offered to take on watches like that you want to stand watch? I'm like well i don't really know like i'm with right in between the vehicle and you guys were all standing watch like shouldn't i i didn't have MVGs. they're like well you don't have MVGs. i'm like well i guess if, by the time i see them if you all haven't seen them yet anybody else hasn't seen them we're all screwed anyways so like you know <laughs> <laughs> but i'll take a watch but i swear those fuckers woke me up earlier mm-hmm. than i they should have and like you know what i mean i swear they're like roger that so I, cause I feel like mine is a little longer than most people's watches. You know, I'm just saying.
0: <laughs> How did it feel for you, um, to be out in, uh, you know, in the combat environment Were did it
1: you was feel terrifying. like,
0: was it, were, were you scared shitless every day or did you start not, to normalize it?
1: Not at first. First you normalize it. You just walk around, you're humping from point A to point B, you get the blisters, the sun, the dehydration, you're exhausted. You keep doing researching villages that you've already Compounds we've already searched, like it's just constant searching, right? For intel, people, for ammunition. I mean, we found lots, of, lots of um, caches up the mountains and behind closed walls. And, you, and that was kind of like fun. Hauling stuff down, you, you know, you, draw, uh, you do a line of people, and you just start throwing the the boxes of weapons and ammo down. And EOD gets called in; they blow it up. One time, they forgot to tell us they were going to blow it up, so they do it in the middle of the night. And we all jump up, like thinking we're under fire. Douchebags. <laughs> I mean, it was that was terrifying but we didn't come into combat or combat into contact with the enemy until June. Like, so we would already been out for a couple months, like April, but we didn't come into contact with the enemy. until right before we were supposed to come out and which was in June. And then it was like four or five days of just constant attacks and ambushes. It was nuts. And I, when we were driving up to the first um, encounter, I was like, just pray. And I'm like, please, Lord, don't let me be one of those women who scream or who cry or like, don't let me break down. Like, let me be able to function um how I'm supposed to, you know? And, and I didn't, it. thank God. Yeah, I, yeah. I and it was kind of like I was trying to describe it to my therapist. <laughs> it's like <laughs> out of it's like out of body, right? Like I felt like it wasn't really I'm watching myself through all this. I was calm, I was collected. I just had my little nine mil out. Why? I don't know. I'm not even supposed to engage, you know, but I had my little nine and I'm running around trying to see where the guys are going because again, I was not part of their teams. So I'm like where am I supposed to go? <laughs> Oh, there's a Marine. Let's follow him. <laughs> Chasing this guy, following him. I mean, bullets are raining down on us, you know, from the mountains. We're at this village, and they're just like, moving, hitting the feet, hit the wall and next to me. Like, oh, shit, oh, shit, oh, shit, in my head. Like, I'm not right. saying this out loud. Right. A lot of this is internal dialogue that I say <laughs> or do, right? And I get behind a wall, and I'm like, I don't know how we, you know, I'm checking myself, and I'm looking around. Nobody's wounded. I'm like, that's amazing. <laughs> like, that's a miracle. I don't know how many of us are not wounded. And then I look up and there's a Marine, he's got a I don't know what the gun is. Like it's got a stand, big gun, big ass bullets. He's like shooting at the top of this building, right? And he's like, doc, do you want to get some? I'm like, no, I'm so
2: baby, thank you. Right? Like, I'll see you right here. You let me know if you need
0: me. <laughs> <laughs> did did you ever start to get used to it? Did you get used to contact? Did you get used to reacting to contact? Did stuff did muscle memory start to kick in?
1: Ever get used to it because a lot of it was unexpected. Like you're being ambushed yeah. constantly, right? And just yeah. being on edge all the time was just, it was just hard. It's hard on your nerves. It was just, you could see the morale of the group start to go down the longer this dragged out. And, you know, we were in danger because we're, I mean, we're at our halfway point of the view, it's not a little closer to going home. We thought we we're coming out of the field. Now, like, no, no, these things are going great. We're going to extend you out here. <laughs> so the fact like, are you shitting me? We already lost a guy. Six more were wounded. Like, they're just, you really felt your mortality, you know, and you were scared. I mean, I remember being on the, on the mountaintop as we are, our, our COC was right. We were, they placed on this one mountain one night. And guys, had, they finally brought in mail. And then we were eating a mace- uh, cake in a mason jar that one of the guys' moms had made. And we're listening to a song by John Michael Montgomery and letters from home. And we're crying like all of us. We're all dirty. We're eating the cake with our dirty fingers in the mason jar. Letters from home. And we're, we're not sobbing, but you could see the tears streaking sh- 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 down mm-hmm. our faces, all of us. And they're like, "Doc, don't you dare to fucking tell anybody about this." So I am, but just not saying your name, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> but like, it really yeah. impacted us, and they, you know, um, all of us. It was hard.
0: What did you find? Um, So I mean, I, I guess there's two ways you can take that. It can either start to break you, or you can learn from it and find muscles that you didn't know you had. What did you mm. find? What was going on for you?
1: And so I was surprised because I was still like, I'm not, I'm not I was not a lean green fighting machine. <laughs> I was in decent shape. You know what I mean? I just got done with field bed. They beat me for two rounds. Like I just, so I wasn't in bad shape, but I was, certainly was not like a Marine female. These women were like top notch. They were the army chips, you know? And I was like, not. And so I was surprised that I could hang in there, but just, you know, it's always, what do they say? Mind over matter is just keep going foot front, one foot from the other just keep going just keep going don't think about it just let your mind go blank you know just keep pushing forward there is an end in sight
0: what mentally were you holding to to get through the deployment was there anything were you praying more were you had you made peace with the possibility of death were you just not thinking about it uh, what, what, what was your your coping mechanism i guess
1: I did pray and I attended some field masses, you know, that they had, and it just kind of felt empty. I talked to God a lot, like in my head. I'm like, okay, God, <laughs> I cannot die in this God forsaken country or I will come back and haunt somebody. Like This cannot be it. I've done nothing with my life. I don't have any kids. I have no legacy. I have like nothing to like be proud of or f- people even like really remember me. that it just cannot be it. And then I start like bargaining. Okay. So God, here's the deal. Here's the deal. Like, if you get me out of here, I promise, you know, you make this like list yeah. of promises. So you yeah, can yeah. be a better person. And so I was doing a lot of that inside my head. Uh-huh. Um, while I was out there, I had my, hu- uh, picture of my husband in my helmet. So I carried that around a lot. um, and at one point, after one engagement with the enemy, they let us call home on the satellite phone, which was a big deal. Because, again, morale was real low. And I got to talk to my mom, and it was a, one of the first times she'd ever said she was proud of me.
0: That's a moment. Yeah.
1: It was a moment. I don't know if I earned it, but it felt good to hear it.
0: Was that the first time she had also kind of acknowledged or given voice to the fact that you were in a combat zone in a way that she had never been.
1: So my mom, she knew where I was and she was probably had a little better head on her shoulders, right. Than me. And so she would write letters, but her letters were always just like a uh, storytelling, trying to keep me updated about what was going on at home to make me laugh, just to make me feel like I wasn't forgotten. So this was like our first conversation of the seriousness of it.
0: Mm. What about your dad? Did he said anything or did he come up on the net at all for you to say not,
1: not really. Like my dad, um, I know that he loved me. I know that he cared. It's just, he's just not a one to talk about that kind of stuff. So, I mean, I, I don't even know if he ever wrote me a letter, but my, my mom would speak for the both of them. You know, your dad and I, or dad this, mm, or, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. would tell stories. I used to love to read the letters my mom wrote to the guys in the, in the we were traveling. I'd sit around and I'd read my letters. and They would laugh, you know, cause my family's just <laughs> As messed up as being like my siblings and my dad, especially like that my mom is always like you're just like your father. And that's not always a compliment, you know, but I'm just saying <laughs> so there's a lot you know to keep people entertained with at least when we were out in the field in the letters my mom sent.
0: Was there a sense I, I, I want to go back to this because I, I just wonder if this would be an issue. Was there a sense that you were doing something in the military after only a few years in? That your parents, with over forty years combined in the military, had never done. Was there ever that sense that for me. Okay,
1: I just didn't have that like bigger picture. Like that is not at all how I thought. Like I wasn't really looking back. I just I didn't develop that you know type of thinking or awareness until I was much much older. Probably after I became a mom, and only after I had children with disabilities, <laughs> did awareness start to kick in. Right, like huh. I started yeah. thinking more deeply, feeling more, and just really trying to analyze stuff that just wasn't my personality like Mm -hmm. that had to develop over time
0: are your parents still around
1: they are they are
0: have have you ever talked about this with them now after the fact this many years later has there been perspective is there ever a sense have you guys talked more about your experiences or is there just been any any more feedback based off of what you went through
1: Really, I mean, I write about and I and I'll say, hey, I wrote an article about you know X, Y, and Z, and I'll put it up there. So if they want to read it, they can. Because I have a hard time sometimes. You would think it'd be easier because it's family. Mm-hmm. It is not. So it's easier for me to write than it is for me to speak. Uh-huh. Um, I'm, I'm more articulate, and I just is more thoughtful into what I'm saying when I write versus when I'm just candid like this.
0: What about your siblings? Did they um, were they reaching out to you, or have they ever after the fact? Been like, wow, you actually really navied it up. You really actually did the military thing to the nth degree. Like, has there been an acknowledgement that way?
1: No, just more like, oh, my sister was a lady, like she did this. And this was really cool. And they'll share things that I write, you know, that's mm. kind of, you know, just, you know, help supporting in that way. But my brothers really did look up to me. They looked up to me, I think until I got out, can you know, a stay at home mom, that, that's kind of when I lost some of their respect. Even my parents, they were not happy. They were pissed. Like we raised you to be stronger than that, we raised you to be better than that. How could you do that? Why are you being dependent on a man? Like it did not go over well when that when that transition took place. Um, but but they've always come back around. I mean, like I said, we love hard, we fight hard. Um, it's just that it was a big deal. Like nobody in my family had ever not worked. My mom was twenty some years raising six kids in the military. So it was right. what are you doing? This is not who you said you wanted to be. This is not things that you had said you were going to do you know
0: what did they think you should do stay they, in stay in really
1: yeah i loved it i was doing good at it. i mean i joke and i'm telling you all these stories where i look horrible but i really did do well and i thrived. i had good marks like um and i loved it
0: did you stay in for one contract did you do a second i contract? did
1: so by the time i was up for my reenlistment i so i got pregnant after i got back from afghanistan when we were in the field um, Again, it was supposed to be ten day off, and I brought my birth control, which was the patch back then. I don't know if they still have that around, but you just stick it on your abdomen, and you're good to go until it's time to put on another one. If you if you don't want to have a menstrual cycle, and so I brought my whole box with, like I brought them all with me because I didn't know what the plan was. Sure. Um, other women did not, so I was having to raid the male Corman's packs for tampons. They use them for bullet hole um, fillers, right? right. So I had to raid their packs to get those for the females. We had a radio in. That was kind of funny the day they CO had radio in for, you know, feminine products for combat infantry unit. That's never happened before. I'm sure. But I, so I had the patch on, but by the time I got back, um, and I had like seven of them on by the time I got back to the ship. So I was totally abusing. Like I never took any of them off. I just kept reapplying another one. Like I just kept wow, reapplying had like 70 stuffers on my admin, right? Like I was Like, I'm not taking that risk. So, by the time I got back on ship, I took them all off. And then when I get home, but within a month of being home, I got pregnant. I was like, oh, shit. I never wanted to be a mom. Like, I that was not in my future. I did not see myself as a mom. I didn't think I'd be a good mom. And so I was not, like, I was not I was just shocked. And I showed my husband, like, he was gaming. And I just kind of stuck the pregnancy test in front of his face. <laughs> and then withdrew it and waited for him to say something. He didn't. He got up and left. So I was like, oh, is he leaving me? Like, what's happening here? But he ran to the store to get more pregnancy tests of different brands. And when those all came back positive, then he called the nurse hotline to see if he can get a false positive. Like <laughs> we were both not ready. like wow. it was very scary,
0: Wow. Why did you think you wouldn't be a good mom? I mean, coming uh, I mean, you developed a, an ability to care for people and kind of shown that side of yourself at that point. I
1: just, you know, just from growing up, the things I people would say about me growing up, and I was terrified I'd be. Uh, my temper would get the best of me. Maybe I would, mm. I'd be too hard on my kids. Like I wasn't sure like, because I'm such an aggressive female. I was like, I don't know. Like I, I really had no experience with children, labor and delivery. I loved, and I did great in labor and delivery, but that's not the same thing as raising a kid. Right. right? Like, right. so I was like, I just can't imagine And I, my brothers idolized me and I'd play with them and look up to them. But again, that's as a sister. It's not as a parent, as a caregiver. So I was like, I don't think I'm capable of this. Like, it just don't feel like it's in me. And of course, you don't know what you don't know. And until I became a mom and those feelings developed and I had tested myself and, you know, I got put in situations that I'm like, well, how am I going to respond to this? You know, really tested me as a parent.
0: So you came back from Afghanistan, you get pregnant. How much longer did you have before your contract ended?
1: So September 5th was when I, we got back. Um, when did we get back so it's t- September 5th of next year so September 15th is I think we got back of 2004 so I gave birth in 2005 so um, June of 2005 okay. so like a month like I got pregnant within a month of getting home gotcha. and then September 5th of 2004 was when I was supposed to re-up so I gotcha. just given birth I was on maternity leave so I basically went straight from maternity leave to terminal leave and my husband asked me he's like hey would you consider getting out and being a stay-at-home mom I'm like what is that like <laughs> I don't think I've ever met, like, I didn't know people who still did that. I didn't, I didn't know any stay-at-home moms. I'd never met one before. I was like, is that a thing? Like, he's like, yeah. <laughs> and he had had family who had been stay-at-home mom. And he was giving me all these examples. I'm like, I'll think about it. I had really no intention of, like, doing yeah. it. Yeah. But once I gave birth, I had no friends or family in Lejeune. I was like, who's going to watch my kid? And then all of a sudden these protective instincts kicked in, right? I'm like, I can't leave my baby alone with strangers. I don't know these people yeah yeah so then i i did take him up on his offer and it was an offer like he wasn't making me do it you know and that took some time to come to terms with too for years i blamed him for getting out of the military um like i felt like i didn't have a choice but it was a choice and i made that choice willingly because of my protective instinct to my daughter but it was a hard transition getting out of the military and becoming civilian that loss of identity that sense of self and purpose like that was really hard to wrap my mind around and come to terms with Um, because also (laughs) when I was pregnant with my daughter, um, I got saved and that's like a weird term. Like people don't like that. It's kind of awkward to say too, but, uh, I was born and raised, uh, Irish Roman Catholic, like like that's a big deal in my family. And my husband was not, um, his family was Baptist and then they were Protestant. And I don't even know what he believed in, but he just was like, so when we got pregnant, religion became an issue, right? Like he's like, You're not baptizing the baby. I'm like, why not? Why can't I baptize your my faith and yours? Why can't we go to my church and then your church at the same time? Like, why can't we just be like, it's free for all? Like, and then they (laughs) just pick. He's like, absolutely not. He's like, do you even know what you believe? Do you know why you believe what you believe? Do you even know the history of your church? Like, uh, (laughs) so then I'm having to go do some research, right? So I can argue, you know, argue back because I didn't know like the things that he was asking me. Like, man, what a way to put me on the spot. But through those arguments and those talks to that research, it made me really question what I believe, why I believe what I believe, what I was doing, what I was doing, what was the significance of it other than tradition, you know? So I did want to get saved when I was pregnant. And my parents, they went crazy. My dad's like, you're in a cult. <laughs> You've been brainwashed, you know? Now I'm a stay-at-home mom. It changed my my faith. And I, it was hard. Like I went into the serious postpartum depression, which I didn't know at the time I was experiencing. You know, I just was lost and I didn't know what I was supposed to do next. I had no purpose. Right. I mean, caring, yes, that came naturally, the the cooking, the cleaning, the feeding, like that didn't take much brain effort to do those things. And the days just drug on and it just seemed endless and horrible. But it um, it wasn't until like at some point I just again so now I'm doing more self-reflection. I'm really thinking more because I have all this time on my hands to do this thinking. Right. And I was like, you know what? To my to the military, to the navy, I was replaceable. You know, I there's somebody, if not better, there's somebody as good to take my spot. Like it just kept on trucking. It didn't need me. And that was eye-opening. Like I really Thought like I did such a great job as a corpsman. I was such a great coworker. Like I would be missed. It wasn't, it wasn't like that. I didn't, I didn't talk to really anybody once I left the mm. military, I just was completely cut off from that life. And I felt like there was a big gaping hole. You know, like you lost you lose a limb and you still kind of feel that limb. That's kind of yeah. what it felt like. Yeah. I just was like, I don't know how to process this, but so finding out, you know, yes, yes, I'm replaceable, but to my kid, I'm irreplaceable. There's nobody who's to love her or be as invested in her future as I am. You know what I mean? And that was enough to get me out of that funk and just kind of okay, what's next, you know, and get to that next stage and move forward and have a more positive outlook. But there was a really dark time after I got out. And I didn't realize, too, that I was struggling with stress from the war still. Like, I thought that, like, I just, that's done. I'm not thinking about it. And I just, but I didn't realize there was underlying issues. I just wasn't dealing, like, I wasn't even realizing we're there.
0: That's uh, I, yeah. I'm glad you said that because I kind of blew right past that. I mean, let's talk about that for a second. Coming back from a combat deployment like that, especially one where so many where you you hadn't anticipated pushing yourself to the extent that you were pushed, and then you get pregnant a month after you come back. So now you've got two significant emotional events very close together. Um. Well, first off, before you got pregnant, what was it like being back? Did you notice that you were different? Did you feel like the world around you was different? Just, where was your head when you came back? I,
1: it was different. It was like our the relationship between my husband and I felt off. When we stayed in contact, we wrote letters. It was just really hard to like reconnect. And to find my footing again, because a lot of people didn't have the same experiences I had. Even the women that I was deployed with, there were only 12 of us at the time that did go out in the field. And only six of us that stayed, you know what I mean? And only two of us really faced combat. Huh. So it was like, it was hard to connect with them. And there's some bitterness or jealousy, resentment. And again, because I was such a mess, like, we're like, what the fuck? Like, why you? Like, mm. like really how significant could your contribution have been? And it was just like... I don't know. I don't really know if I made a difference like, or I mean, I didn't hold anything up. So there's a lot of shame too on my part. Like I just feel like maybe I didn't do a good job. Maybe I just, and so I just try not to think about it. And it's hard because you still had all these feelings that you wouldn't allow yourself to feel in the moment. Like you didn't yeah. allow yourself to really dwell yeah. on the fear and what was going down. You just, we're going through like you're in you're in the moment so you don't have time to really process your feelings and i when i got out like i still wouldn't allow myself to process those feelings it wasn't until my son got diagnosed with terminal illness and i lost my shit that i went seeking help with depression because i'm sad right so i was like maybe i'm depressed that i got labeled with you know ptsd bipolar uh all these other things and i'm like are you kidding me i came in here for help for depression now i'm getting like labeled like What's wrong with you people? You know? (laughs) Yeah. I was so mad. I was in denial of that, but it wasn't until then. And that's what really triggered some of those memories coming back was my son's diagnosis with his death, the threat of death hanging over his head every day brought a lot of those memories. I'm like, it has been years. Why am I thinking of this crap now? Like, I don't get it. Like it didn't compute the connection, but it was the fear, I guess maybe.
0: Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. I guess. If in your experience were was the issues stemming from the deployment two things one the issue of mortality and the fear of death and the second being the sense of worth around your service were those kind of the two biggest things that were that yes. were kind present for you
1: they were you know I didn't ever want to get out I loved my job and I felt like I let my family down I felt like I let myself down um the going to war like I don't know if I really I mean, they kept saying we were like, you know, the first woman to ever deploy with combat infantry unit, but that got swept under the rug. That never got officially put in the archives. Like that never
2: wow.
1: came to be. And I was like, and in fact, I didn't even realize that until I was reading somebody's dissertation. I think uh, he was gun gunnery, gunnery sergeant then, but I don't know, um, I don't know what he was when he got out. But I was reading his dissertation when I was in college about the, our deployment, and come to find out, there's another group of women. I think I don't know if they were in the army. I think maybe or maybe hmm. the Marine Corps, the Lionesses is what they're called. But okay. anyway, they wound up getting term the first females to ever deploy the combat infantry unit, the female of the FET team, the female engagement right. team. Right. And I was like, what happened? I mean, we were on the news, like it was a big deal. So why did we, was what we went through not worthy of recognition, you know? So that came in the effect too, like maybe it wasn't that important. Um. So I, it was just hard. Kay. yeah
0: I l- let's let's I I, I don't want to pass this over. there's so much stuff to to dive into, but I, I do want to make a point of talking about the nature of that service because you were there as a searcher, but there you are I mean it, it's you know that, that that job description doesn't spare you from doing everything else that the Marines you were with were doing. Let's talk about the searching itself. What was it like for the first time to search somebody? What was it like every time to search a woman in Afghanistan? Was there a sense of the clash of cultures? Was there a sense of what, what did that mean? And I'm, I'm kind of trying to tease what we're going to talk about in a little bit, but what did that mean for your relationship with the women of Afghanistan that you had had kind of this intimate connection with them in your service?
1: At First, it was hard and I felt really bad. I felt really bad. Because some of these women maybe didn't even know who we were. Like, I don't know what their men told them. I didn't even know if they knew their country was at war. Like, I don't know what they knew. We were in the mountains. We're not in the cities, you know? And uh, the fear, you could see in their faces. And some were just brave or just angry, you know? And they stood there and they were like, you're not touching me. And having to, to force them to endure your touch was hard. Um. I just kind of felt like a monster or like when they set the women down and, and they're all clustered together, the women and the children, there's a picture of me on the internet where that's where I'm standing there. I'm trying to smile at them because I'm trying to look not threatening, but I, here I am in my full gear, got yeah. my, you know, gun attached to my leg and I'm hovering above them. Mm-hmm. They're all sitting, and I'm standing above them. And I just, it felt awful, but I knew it was important because we did eventually find, um, what I think were not me, but another female searcher, I found one that had something beneath her, her burqa. you know? And so we never found a male dressed up as a woman, but that was always a risk. And they were, you know, wanting to make sure it was not going to pass them by. But, um, and I, I had, we had another woman get violent with one of the female searchers. She didn't get, I never got anybody to get violent with me, but it did happen. Like they just did not, they resented that. Like who, you know, just busting through their homes, telling them what to do, having to endorse somebody's hands upon your body. Like, I'm sure they were thrilled that it was women doing it versus the men. hmm you know um but that that searching itself was not ideal like i i did feel bad about that but it was what we had to do so we did it um it's a fun part though is that sometimes like the women were curious so they would ask the interpreter like he'd be outside the room or somewhere off the side where he's not watching but he's like yelling out what they're saying to mm-hmm. us right so we could talk and the women wanted to ask me questions or they wanted to touch me and so i remember one of the um, the lieutenant was like, yeah, that's fine. So like, I had to hand over my gun because they wanted to touch the gun. So I made sure it was empty and they wanted to feel the gun. They wanted to touch my hair or just look at me and ask me like how old I was. And at the time, I was 22. And they laughed because I was so old and I didn't have any children. <laughs> and they couldn't believe my husband was not there. And he let me go you know, to work here with all these men. So it's just so strange for them.
0: What was the average search like for you? Did you have time? Was there any chance to build rapport? Or were you dealing with so many people that it was like a, just a, a cattle call? You're just doing one after another and there's no real time to take stock of it.
1: There was really no time to, to build rapport because I mean, the, the um, interpreter would be there with us for the, until we were done searching and then he walked off mm-hmm. to go help the guys and what they were doing, uh, you know, and plus yep. I'm sure he didn't feel comfortable just being around a bunch of women. Like that's sure. not their culture, right? Sure. And so again, we are standing there staring at each other, <laughs> smelling the goat poop you know, sweating in the sun, like yeah. Yeah. very uncomfortable until it was time to go. Until we came back again, you know, later in the week. Cause we just kept researching the same compounds over and over.
0: What did you, what did you think? Um, suddenly being plunged into, especially in 2004 when you hadn't had a lot of rotations come back from Afghanistan yet. So it, this is, I mean, probably one of the most reclusive or, or, Difficult to access cultures on the planet, and you're one of the first Americans there. What did it feel like for you to to be around these women? Obviously, they were fascinated with you and curious about you. But what were what was your reaction to being around them?
1: Initially, like I said, I felt bad, and then eventually, as time wore on, and we were getting shot at, and we're scared, we're tired, we're hungry. I started to get resentful. <laughs> mm-hmm. I started to get ready. Let's be real. Like I was young and dumb. I only knew mm-hmm. the bare minimum. Yeah. And I'm like, why are we here? What is the purpose of what we're doing here? You know, mm-hmm. because in a specific, uh, I wrote about it to, um, one of the female searchers, Captain Marte, she was uh, from New York. She was this real hardcore feminist, you know, she'd p- come aside and was trying to talk to these women about women's rights and what we're doing here. <laughs> and like,
2: yeah.
1: she's given this big spiel and this older lady cuts her off, you know, cause it's, um, she spoke for the group like this, this older lady. And she just didn't want to hear any more of it. And she's like, well, you know, Why would we want that? This is the way it's always been, you know. This is the way it's gonna be. And I was just disgusted. I just walked out. I was just like shaking my head. And then, of course, what happened? You know, the Taliban are back in control of Afghanistan, and it just felt like what she meant was that you're gonna be gone soon. You know what I mean? Like I Mm -hmm. don't want to even tempt this younger generation with what you're saying because. That's not yeah. what's going to happen here, you know? And I was devastated, like when the fall came and I cried and I was like, I felt so much remorse. Like she was right. Like, and she had to live in this place, in this mountain with this little education under this male, you know, these religious extremists. And I was just like, oh my God, shame on me. But this is before the women in Afghanistan. Like when I wrote this about her and just sharing like, you know, this bravery and just enduring there's bravery and surviving, you know, and just making it through each day. But then the, the protest started and I was beyond like amazed. Like I couldn't believe these Afghan women with no guns, no weapons, no support, no male support, like no military support. were there in the streets in the, mm-hmm. Af- like the terrorist mm-hmm. face protesting. I just started sobbing again, but then I felt a fire within me just like bill, because I was like, yes, like, that's amazing. Like that's, I can get behind that. Let, how can I support these women? You know, like I felt shame for the way I felt and the way I thought previously, but I was also encouraged to see what was happening now.
0: Do you think that's right to feel shame about that? Cause I feel like, look, you're getting shot at. I mean, that's understandable. <laughs> like you got other stuff, you know, you can have different perspectives at different times, but I know. you know, I mean, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm not, I'm trying to put words in your mouth and I, I shouldn't. No. What, what do you think? I mean, were you able to step back though and and kind of reconcile the shame and go, okay, oh, yeah. well, I, you know, you put it in its right place.
1: I did. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't let it fester because you're right. There was no place for that. Like this was 22 year old me yeah. in the middle of nowhere, like, little information, afraid, tired, like just you know, you get angry, and you start saying things. Like you just you're going through a hard time and misery loves company. Everybody's feeling miserable. Mm-hmm. Like it's just this shared misery going on around and you're angry and you're, you're picking it, you're putting it on somebody, you know? And I just, what I did at that moment, like I was just mad at these women. <laughs> it's not their fault, you know, Yeah, yeah what's yeah. happening. Yeah. So, but I was able to do that, but I, um, but I, so yes, I do still think there is, it's brave to just endure and to make the best out of your situation. So I don't disagree with what I wrote, but I do think like the women that are protesting now are next like level. I, I could not have anticipated that, could not imagine something that would happen. And it's still ongoing.
0: I want to. I'm tempted to just skip ahead because I want to know. I want to talk with you about the Afghan women's situation now. But um, before I do, I I just want to kind of close the loop on your post deployment mindset. Um, Coming back to the States before you found out you were pregnant, did you think you were going to go back to Afghanistan? Was there a thought in your mind? Did you even go, well, that was that run and I'll gear up for maybe the next year or two to head back over. I mean, did you think that chapter had not totally closed for you?
1: So I was actually told I was going to go to Iraq next. Okay. So we were getting ready to start um, okay. for the next deployment. And so when I got pregnant, they're like, really booty? Really? I'm like, it was not a pre- like I was still on birth control, but by then my love, my hormone levels were all out of whack. And so mm-hmm. it was an accident. And there was definitely guilt for that. Like I felt ashamed. I did want to be one of those women getting pregnant to get out of deployment. Right. Like, that wasn't my goal or objective. It was a complete accident. And then I was losing the baby. And so when I went into the clinic to be seen because I was bleeding, uh, the doctor I was I worked with in labor delivery back in Jacksonville, Florida, he was there. He's like, oh, it's fine. You're just miscarrying. You'll be okay. And I was just like distraught because it was just such not a big deal. And I didn't realize I even cared until then. Like Then I was devastated that I was losing the baby. I wound up not losing her, but my body was in the process of, I guess, trying to, right? And so I had to go on bed rest for a little bit, and then um, it was fine. It, I recovered, but so that was the revelation too. I guess I really did want this baby. You know, I didn't yeah, think I did, but then yeah. when I was at the threat of losing the baby, I was like, "Oh my gosh!" So that was hard. It was hard to know that my team was deploying, my company was deploying again, and I would not be with them. And um, so that sucked. You know, I can, I, I,
0: well, I can, I can imagine. I can't relate, obviously, but. I, I can imagine that now that is, that's a whole nother layer of complexity. Um, the emotional roller coaster of thinking you're going to miscarry and then not, but now you still have a baby and you're not deploying with your team. And that's a lot of emotional, that's a lot of significant emotional events in a very short time span to be mm-hmm. coping with. Um, I guess, how did you find your, your head was, going through that, were you finding that you were just walling yourself off and just focusing on the next wicket or was it, was it something that you were able to kind of get some per- start to get some perspective on?
1: So I had a horrible tendency of, of walling things off. Like I will go and just things will just disappear in my mind. Like, I don't even know how to describe it. Like I, I call them like black holes. Like I have so mm-hmm. many memories, from my childhood missing so many memories, from my military mm-hmm. experiences missing just because they were traumatic or they were, was too much for me to process. And so I just, I just was like cheese, like the Swiss cheese with all the holes. Like I just, that's how it, it, it looks in my mind's eye. So it's really hard. And I've tried um, delving into those. And I have in therapy, like once I might, like I said, my son was diagnosed. I did eventually come to terms with the diagnosis and seek therapy. Um, group therapy helped the most, but being able to talk about that with people, it, you'd be surprised yeah. by the things you recall as you just start talking.
2: Mm, mm-hmm.
1: it, like you're not really thinking to start talking. Mm-hmm. It's like, holy crap. I didn't realize, you know, that.
0: I had that memory. This is this is a say as much or as little as you want about this. I, I hesitate to bring this up, but I feel like it's almost unavoidable now with what we know about toxic exposures and the environment and everything in both the combat zones. Do you feel like your your pregnancy was affected by your deployment?
1: I don't know if it it's like, I always worried it was um, my exposure, like all the, the anthrax shots we had to take. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I did not respond well to those. I had to get um, antibiotics because I was swelling. I was getting cellulitis. Wow. Like my body did not respond well to the anthrax shots um, and just the stress that my body had been under for so long, you know?
2: Totally. Yeah. I,
1: so, I mean, I'm sure that may be a contributing factor, either one. Um, I just didn't think about it that much. Yeah. You know, I just, like I said, just, I'm not going to think about these things. I'm going to, mm-hmm. what's next? And then it's always been my mentality um, because I just don't know how to dwell. And that's hard to sit and really process and dwell and think and rationalize and analyze things. Like Mm -hmm. I just, that's, it's hard to to do.
0: Did you find you'd lost your sense of humor at all in the next couple of years after you got out? Did you find that you, or was that a coping mechanism that you could still always rely on a sense of humor and kind of a, a lightness of spirit to kind of help you through? the times
1: i did i'd say when i was initially like you know after I, I became a stay-at-home mom i you know lost my my religion and my parents my family is all mad at me i'm living with family we didn't even have a home so we're nomadic we're staying with family while he's in so my husband got a ring for during the coast guard so that was a hard transition for him like we're all doing these big things at the yeah. same time and so um all of our both of our identities shifted and we didn't know who we were what we were doing like he didn't want to join the coast guard like that wasn't like ideal but at the time it was the best option for him and us as a family and his family in the coast guard so like and so it was it was really hard on us um and figuring out who we were and long term like what, what did that look like for us you know
0: and how were you feeling Were you feeling like things were like, these were necessary steps to get stable or was it feeling like things were falling apart a little?
1: It just felt like everything was up in the air and we were floating through life and nothing was really stable. Like, you know, I couldn't grab anything to hold still in place Mm -hmm. and just really plant Mm -hmm. roots and solidify myself. Um, And we really didn't get to that point until we got to Hawaii and I got pregnant with my son soon as you get to why again another accident on birth control different birth control still got pregnant and then soon after his delivery he was diagnosed with this terminal illness and then just how that rocked us as a family as a as husband and wife as parents it, how it affected my husband's job like everything like it was insane and i was just blessed to be in a position where i was already a stay-at-home mom to be able to take care of him so that wound up working you know benefiting us in the end that i was already in that position to do
0: yeah what did that mean for his job? So did he have to refuse certain assignments or make sure he only got certain assignments in order to facilitate your son's care?
1: So the co Guard is like super family friendly as long, at least back then, I can't speak to now, but like back then when all this was going down, as long as you're not a scumbag mm-hmm. and they have a billet for you, they'll work with you. Like you do your job, your job, do- what's happening at home doesn't really impact your job. Then we will work with you. So we wound up living in Hawaii for 16 years. Yeah, so that was his first duty station in the Coast Guard, and he's had a second one now here in Clearwater, Florida. But and that's kind of unheard of, right? But continuity yeah. of care, and because you know my my son, I don't know if you know, but my son was given a, a prognosis of only two years; he wasn't expected to live to past his second birthday. He is now fourteen, so he's outlived that prognosis by you know twelve years. So, and I really do contribute that, that to the amazing care that he received at Army Tripler, Tripler Medical Center our Tripler, I can't speak, Tripler Army Medical Center, TAMC, over there in Hawaii. They have amazing pediatric um, services and Coast Guard. I mean, we could not have achieved that or gotten that care without the Coast Guard signing off on it, you know, and then just the home health nursing in, in our community that we wound up building and establishing there. Um, and so that really helped to keep my son alive to the point where he is now.
0: Talk about that that journey. Um, I'll I'll give you some context for this, just so it's not like Uh, I guess I'll try to emotionally ante up for you. The hardest year of my life was taking care of my dad. Um, when he was after my mom suddenly died and, and he was immobilized and I had to put everything in life on hold. And I basically went broke, taking care of him for 10 months until he died. Um, and that was nothing in my life has ever been as hard as that. That was just, I, I, I probably am still processing that, um, that was over a decade ago. Um, so that's my that's my emotional auntie but to also to say that i know how difficult caregiving is especially of a loved family member um i um <laughs> i'm trying to, i'm trying to not ask the obvious question how's it been for you but uh i mean but i see an awful lot in your instagram you know posts and and all and how much you share it's um I can only imagine the strength that uh, it's taken to not just be caring for him, but to have exceeded that prognosis by a decade or more. I mean, that's incredible. Mm -hmm. Um, Talk about that. Just what has that meant to you? What have you, and I guess even what have you discovered about yourself? What is, I mean, you've had an awful lot of emotional, significant emotional events in your life, but it seems like that would be almost the top of the pyramid, right? As far as what you've achieved with him
1: sure so uh, the starting point for me at least that helped me the most was initially after diagnosis when my son's neurologist sat us down to talk about like next steps he didn't just say go home love on your kid and just wait for Mm. him to die Which a lot of people with smas my son's disease is called spinal muscular atrophy and there's four types he has type one and type one is the worst and it's usually diagnosed in in, in infancy so a lot of the people with sma that's what their doctors would tell their parents you know like just go home and love on this You know, so our doctor instead was like, Hey, so yes, I can't give you false hope. Like I can't, There's no treatment. There was no cure. There's nothing, right? It's just, it was the number one genetic killer of children under the age of two, one in 40 people carry the gene. Like really, I mean, a lot of people carry this gene. You've never, most people have never heard of it. And so he said, so I'm not gonna give you false hope, but I can tell you is how to care for him. You know the OT, the PT, clinical studies, like, and that gave me direction. Like when your life is, you're you're just a normal mom, and all of a sudden in the heartbeat, you're now a special need, or I shouldn't say special needs. That's like no longer acceptable. You're what uh, is no, it? Isn't. Oh okay. Medically medical mom. You're a medical mom. Okay. Overnight, yeah, that's like a big thing in the, in the disability community. You can't say special needs. Okay. So. um just overnight, like you know, you're all your dream. You have dreams, as you're pregnant, and you're developing. You know, your child's developing. You start dreaming of what that future is gonna look like with them. When you find that they're a boy or a girl, okay, what what goals or achievements, things do you think they're gonna, as a, that sex? By you just do. You just start thinking like football, mm-hmm. yeah, or ballet, or whatever it is that you know. What I mean, you you associate with with that, and when all that just gets dashed in Vincent instant, your hopes, your dreams for your kids, you don't even know if they're gonna live. Like. Y- y- or for how long they're to live. You know what I mean? It just, it becomes a nightmare overnight. Like you're living in a nightmare overnight. And so um, when that doctor gave us direction, I grabbed onto that with two hands. I was like, I can do this. Like, if I can't make it better. I can at least improve your quality of life. You know, I can, I can, what I can do is make sure that you were loved and you were happy. Like for all that he endured, all that, and my son has endured a lot, a lot of intensive and inv- invasive um surgeries and care, you know, very scary things. But we'd laugh and we'd sing and we dance during treatments and you know what I mean, just try to make it as fun and normal for him as possible. He's still just a kid at heart. Yes, he has these disabilities. Yes, he's losing these these mobility, like he can't walk, he can't stand, he can't spit on his own, he has to wear a diaper, has to be G2 fed. Like these things progressively occurred, you know, as time went on. So he's losing all these things, but like how can we make it bearable for him? You know, and he's still just a kid, so just and, and catering to that, you know. Uh, and then I just would, would like to say, I'm no. sorry, real quick. No, no, um, sure. So my husband and I did not cope the same way with my son's diagnosis. Um, you can be two people going through the same exact hardship, yeah. right? This is both yeah. our kid. We both got the news at the same time. We did not process the same way, and that's okay. And we got to the point we couldn't barely even talk to each other. You know, it's just some pain can't be shared. And that's just important to know. It's that it's not a lack of love; it just is the way it is, and that's okay, you know. Um, and that was something we learned. You, it, sorry, go ahead. No, no, no you're okay. So I'll keep going.
0: <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, I, I, I want you to, because uh, this is this is stuff that nobody talks about, and that um, I think is incredibly important to, to mention.
1: Uh, I, I would say that over time, like by the time my son turned three, like it really occurred because, you know, we were just living with a threat of death hanging over his head. Like, and he was progressively worsening his degenerative disease. And I just wait, like I just would be up at night, just watching him breathe because I didn't know like it would be his last breath. Like I just couldn't sleep. Right. And, um, by the time he turned three, we realized that there was no expiration stamped on his body. Like we really didn't know. So then we were like, you know what, let's stop. Worrying about the death part and start living for today, you know, and just really stop existing and start living. And so we put aside our old hopes and dreams and we just thought of new ones. Like, what is possible for him? Like, what is possible? And that's what we 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 went with. We, were, we were, and I say we because I always include my husband. Mainly me because again he sh- he shut down like he just disconnected, and that was fine. Like I just I. Marriage is never 50 50. We all at certain times will do more than the other. Like, and he has done more than me at certain times. Like, we just, that's just the way the scales are constantly balancing and, you know, fluctuating. And at this time, like, he was so focused on work, being the provider, mm-hmm. making sure it didn't impact his job. And he didn't go to any of the appointments. He didn't do the hospitalizations. He didn't make any of the decisions for the equipment or, like, you know, end of life stuff. Yeah. Like, that was all on me because he just could not handle it. And that was fine. There's no shame in that. Like, he just couldn't. Um, and again, later on, of course, as our marriage progressed, our son got older, things became easier to talk about and deal with. Both of us through therapy that health. I cannot speak enough on that and how important that is. But um, but yeah, so and then when I got my daughter's diagnosis shortly after my son's diagnosis, she was diagnosed with autism. Right. And she also has a genetic um, was called deletion uh deletion and so when i got her diagnosis the doctor brought me in to tell me about her diagnosis had me sit down and i'm all like on pins and needles because my son was diagnosed first I'm like what the hell like what does my daughter have even though yeah. she's older you know i mean she was not diagnosed first yeah and he's like i i'm you know i just i'm sorry to tell you that your daughter has autism spectrum disorder Is he going off and i'm like oh thank god really <laughs> that's it like and he was so blown away like he couldn't believe like i was so relieved i started crying because i was smiling like i just was just like Woo! you know like
0: jesus wow and he's like
1: wow. and he asked for an explanation like why like it seems so inappropriate you know my response and wow. i'm like look my son is terminally ill like i can deal with this because with the bright supports and wow. services she can lead a healthy wow. long fulfilling life you know right right and so so when i have friends too who who um get the kids diagnosed with not get but their kids are diagnosed autistic um the, you know, they're falling apart and they're looking to me for advice. I'm like, I feel inadequate to help you in the situation because like
2: uh, I yeah. You know what
1: yeah. I mean? Like that was not my response to this diagnosis. So it's so hard sometimes to to connect even with these different communities, SMA community, the autism community, like it's hard to connect. Same thing with the veteran community. Like it's I I'm just kind of this loner in all these situations.
0: Huh. Let's let's turn this back on to you. What what is all of this meant for you? I mean, you talked about initially about thriving in chaos. And certainly mm. you've had plenty of chaos to thrive in. But what if you I mean, <laughs> I'm trying to think of a way to make this sound that doesn't sound like an after school PSA, but what have you learned about yourself? What is this? I mean, I I can only imagine the muscles that you found that you never knew you had throughout all this. But w- when you look at yourself now versus you just enlisting in the Navy I mean I, I can't am- That it's almost like you'd be two different people the amount of muscles that you've probably developed since then
1: I just feel like I'm two different people like I just sometimes have a hard time looking back and be like was that me really like I just uh. it's a lifetime ago really but I, I learned that I could do hard things <laughs> and I have no limit I constantly seem to a hard thing occurs it's harder than the last thing and maybe that's the way this most people I don't know you know what I mean and They're all big things, and I just keep moving forward, like you said. I just keep handling it, and okay, what's what's the next thing? I you know, I so and I want my kids to understand that too. There's no limit, you know. You can do whatever you set your mind to. And with you know, you have a will, there's a way, you just gotta figure it out. It may not be exactly as you dreamed, but it can still be like my son, he wants to walk. Well, I can't we can't walk, but I can get you a power chair, you know? Yeah, and so finding alternatives to still achieve the end goal, you know, independence for him was his, that end goal there. So, and that's what I've to do for myself. I may not get the thing that I exactly wish for, but what's, what's the main objective here? Like, mm-hmm. what is it that I really want? Okay. Can I achieve that some other way? And so what that's is, helped me develop that over time.
0: And what is that for you? What are you looking at right now? What is your path? Where, what are you trying to do? Where are you, what's your, where's your head at for the future?
1: So, so funny that you asked that because I had a guy in group therapy asked the group once he goes, Hey, you guys, I have a serious question. What is your purpose? <laughs> what is your purpose in life? And it's crickets whole room was silent. Right. And I wound up speaking up and, I, and I'm like, I guess just to do good in this world, like just to know yeah. that my life, not necessarily my life meant to do, that. I, I gave back. Like I did something good for somebody else. Like I put good into this world. So it, that doesn't just stop. You know what I mean? Like so many bad things happen, but good things happen too. And I just want to be part of that. Um, And so, really, I've gotten into advocacy. Initially, it started with my kids with disability advocacy, and then uh, led eventually when when, when, uh, I'm helping. um, I don't want to say women's rights, but I guess it is. You know, when you specifically talk about Iran and Afghanistan, like really Mm -hmm. pushing for that and trying to help, um, not speak for them, but like um, amplify voices that are not being heard, or maybe portraying them in a different way so they get that like Mm -hmm. attention that they're looking for because it's important what they're fighting for matters, you know, and same thing with my kids. So I really, it's kind of gone in that direction now as time has progressed. Um, And that's more just because of my son and his disabilities, it's made me more open-minded. It's made me more compassionate. I'm not so naive anymore. Like my eyes, like the only disabled person I ever saw was just some random person on the street in a wheelchair. And I didn't give them a second glance, like a second. it didn't even occur to me what life would like for them until I became a mom with a disabled child. And I see how, the world's not meant for, made for the non-disabled, you know, it really isn't. And how do we make it more inclusive? How do we, you know, communicate to everyone as best as possible? I so feel that's like, how that affected me.
0: Yeah. I feel like a mom is at at her core is always a champion of others in, in a lot of respects, because I think it feels like motherhood and fatherhood too, to a degree, but mothers tend to be the ones that embody this more. I feel like... Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm putting that in form of a question to you. Do you feel like that? Do you feel like that's how the advocacy thing has grown with you that you've kind of found ways to, as, that is you're improving people's lives around you. And as you're focusing on one day at a time and the good in the now, that it can't help but morph into advocacy and into awareness and into community building and all the things that make up a, a typical advocate's life and a champion's life.
1: Um, you're saying, do I think that this was just natural in the course?
0: Well, yeah, that through everything you've been doing, um, and through, uh, helping your son and your daughter and your family, um, that, that it was kind of inevitable that advocacy would become, it kind of started to take more and more of a central role in your life. And that when Afghanistan and Iran kick off and you see a need there, that it makes sense for you to kind of look for. Injustices that can be rectified or awareness that you can bring to a situation or causes that are worthy of your advocacy.
1: Absolutely. And I I think that it was a natural progression. It was a natural um, to cut to this point in life. And I think it helps that I I like to speak about what I know, things that I have experience with. Like, I don't want to pretend to be this, you know, all-knowing person Mm -hmm. or just like Mm -hmm. this. I'm, I'm so smart. I'm really into politics. I'm not, you know what I mean? I speak to things that matter to me and having been to Afghanistan, having interacted with these women, having seen the poverty, having seen the way these women are treated, like it it affected me emotionally. the, the fear that these women are going through because I felt the same fear of the Taliban. I, there was one point where uh, it was, it was notified they were looking to capture a female um, out in the field. And so the guys rushed me back. We were doing a insistence. assistance. Um, so just like, I couldn't imagine like being these women so anyways so yes i i i feel connected to afghanistan and i don't know if i'll ever like i just when i got back you said do you you feel like you would change i had changed like i don't they always say the war doesn't leave you and i never have like something in me was just different and i don't know what that is exactly can't put a you know my finger on it but i just know that afghanistan as a whole matters to me maybe i don't know if it should or it shouldn't but it just does you know the country the people the culture i have a greater respect Um, More knowledge and just a a heart for them.
0: Did you keep up with Afghanistan when you left? I mean, were there? I mean, you had a lot going on in your life, but I mean, was it a subject that always, if you had a chance to read about it, would that you would, or was it one of those things where, you know, with the withdrawal and everything that kind of sprang up, it was like it kind of reopens, it it rips the scab off, and now you're kind of it's back in the bloodstream a little bit.
1: Well, with the withdrawal, yeah, because it's a big change, right? Well, after yeah. we left, of course there's still encounters, there's still deployments, but nothing really different was going on, right? Like it was pretty yeah. steady, like what was happening mm-hmm. over there and nothing new, right? So if there was a really interesting story, I'd read it. Love the homecomings, homecomings always make me cry, you know. Right, right, right. Watch those videos. But like it wasn't until the withdrawal, like I I just was so enraged. I'm like, I cannot believe this is the way it's ending. I cannot believe like this couldn't have been done better. I'm not saying we should have stayed. But like this couldn't have been done better, you know, set them up for success versus just Mm -hmm. like "Eh, we're out. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I just, it just was happening to the women like overnight. I just, I couldn't imagine.
0: Um, how did you start linking up with some of the activists or reaching out? What did your advocacy mean? What steps were you taking? What things were you doing to kind of get yourself? Yeah.
1: I, um, I just started writing write like, you know, people, uh, mm-hmm. I learned in therapy, like writing is cathartic and that's kind of how I started writing for the half journal and, and the mighty and aware now it's just to, to, um, get it out there. What was in my mind and just kind of release like a release. Mm-hmm. Right.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so I started writing, uh, I wrote a poem. I am a million voices, uh, based off an article I'd read from the New York times, um, with a female advocate named Crystal Biot who's still in Lynn. she she orchestrated this protest on afghan independence day this is well after the taliban in power now and she's out there alone and she's like i'm speaking for all the women who can't speak i'm paraphrasing because she went up um i'm a, like of the millions that i can't speak i am their voice basically and that's where the i'm a million voices came from just from the, the female afghan perspective as i imagined you know
2: mm-hmm.
1: i uh and then i sent it to her i sent that and another one i've written about her too um Forgive, forgive me. Um, Cause I write so much. <laughs> no,
0: I know, I know. No, it's true. Yeah. Uh,
1: we don't talk about the Afghan women. It was a mm-hmm. parody or a song off of. Uh, we don't talk about Bruno, that Disney song. So I, because it was really catchy at the time, right? So I was trying them to put something out there that people would recognize and maybe want to listen to because it was familiar. And I put that with those with those words. And I sent copies of those. I just randomly found her on Instagram. Didn't know she had one. And I clicked you know her name where you can tag somebody, but she wanted responding back. And through that, we just started communicating. And then I was able to get um, Crystal on the Havoc. So she was able to write an article from her perspective about life. And she did, she got that published The Havoc. And then um, I write for the Aware Now magazine. Mm-hmm. So I was able to get her on there to share her story and put her in touch. And she's built her own organization. So just, you know, just try it at least one person. Now, I can't do anything for majority, but maybe I can help this one person, you know, yeah. I can support yeah. this one person, you know, And maybe that'll lead somewhere to somebody else who can help her.
0: I know she's supposed to come on the show. (laughs) I've been, I've been trying, I know you, you, you hooked us up. I've been trying to, she and I have been shifts passing in the night, but yeah, we're, we're, we're trying to get her on here.
1: She's an amazing speaker and just an amazing person. Like just admire her greatly. So that was how I got connected, I guess, specifically with advocacy and her in particular.
0: Yeah. Um, what do you think that means for the future for you? Do you think that there's more of that that you would do? Do you see yourself taking an increased role with that? Or is it kind of one of these things that you're just going to take one day at a time and just see what develops and what the need is?
1: I would I would love to get more into advocacy, uh, um, maybe get certified in some of the classes that they had out there um, in that regard. I just haven't, because um, we're still getting situated here in yeah. Florida and yeah. the kids and medical and all that it's hard to juggle that because I don't ever want to put my family on the back burner
0: Yes, right.
1: um, because they are my priority. Even though they're older now and their needs are different, you know, they're more established in in their health and stuff as in not so scary, but um, the disease is still progressive. Like it's still terminal condition. So just making sure I have my priorities straight and I don't get so involved in others problems because I'm avoiding mine because I, you know, I don't want to, process or deal with what i got going on here I'm just trying to make sure i maintain those healthy boundaries and levels and mm-hmm. things like that and it could be hard to do i'm bipolar so i i can go all in and do like super passionate super focused and just like you know on, on something and just being aware like okay lori it's proportionate like is what you're feeling like really have to do that self-evaluation and again i didn't know i was bipolar i didn't get that diagnosis so much later so that was kind of interesting having this this disorder in the military and how that came into being and it affected those I worked with too. Maybe that was why I I had a hard time maintaining relationships. Who knows? But Mm. just, but just even now, just being aware of how that could impact others like my family and those I'm trying to help and just, you know, that kind of stuff.
0: Do you think, do you think people are overdiagnosed? I'm just kind of throwing that out there as as an arbitrary thing.
1: I do. And in fact, I didn't believe my diagnosis. I thought they were Mm -hmm. quack. But then when I want to get diagnosed the same one by another doctor that was completely, you know, uh-huh. a whole other test. Like they tested me independent of this guy, didn't have his his data. So I'm like, well, maybe there's some truth to this. Let me research what that is, you know. So I'm reading up on what bipolar is. I'm like, oh, because I I can see how this applies and how I do these things or how I react. Or I'm like, crap, you know, really. So I mean, I wasn't thrilled, but at the same time, like knowing that I had this condition made me more aware of my behaviors and the appropriateness or inappropriateness of what I was saying or doing, and just keeping that, um, you know, uh, what's the word?
0: <laughs> well, God being uh, self-aware in
1: mind. Yeah, yeah just yeah. keeping it in mind, so yeah. I'm not uh, hurting people because my husband will tell me all the time, and he's really great with advice. I don't always appreciate it in the moment, but looking back, you know. He told me, Lori, it is not what you say it be true. You know what you're saying? He's like, it is how you say it. He's like, it's just, you just come across so rude. He's like, you just have no filter. (laughs) He's like, you really just need to think before you speak. He's like, I'm not trying to, and he's not being condescending. It's true. Like I've lost many a relationship because I'm just so blunt. So I just, yeah.
0: Which, which isn't the worst thing when it comes to advocacy. And also isn't the worst thing when it comes to defying the odds with your son and willing yourself to love him and care for him in the moment. Mm -hmm. I, I, you know, it, it seems that, you know, what's that thing? Your greatest strength is also your greatest weakness, you Mm -hmm. know, but also that means your greatest weakness is your greatest strength. Like there, (laughs) there, you know, it is very much a double-edged sword.
1: It Um, is like the schools would call me a contentious parent. I'm like, I'm not contentious. I'm a team player. I really am but you're not going to steamroll over my kid. Like it's not going to happen, you know? Yeah. And just because I you know I had an advocate once before, you can't say that. Cause I yelled at an administrator. Cause he's talking big and just fancy and in circles. I'm like, that's it. That's enough. Speak to me in crayon. What are you trying to say? You know, She's, you can't say that. I'm like I just did, you know, so keep it simple. What are <laughs> you trying to say? <laughs>
0: Listen, what, when are you going to be um, putting out another book? Is there another book in the offing? I, we didn't even talk about a uh, gift from God, but we, we probably should. Um, so First off, let's maybe just talk about it. I think it's pretty obvious, but why don't you just tell everybody, I mean, where did that come from? Why did you choose to write it? And why did you choose to write a book? Why wasn't it just an article?
1: Sure. So uh, Ironically, I wrote this for my daughter when I first had her. Um, and then later on, when I had my son and I was like, you know, doing that self-reflection, looking over life, I rewrote it um for him specifically. And then um primarily because a lot of people don't talk about diagnosis day or how to move forward after diagnosis day. There's not a whole lot of literature out there. There just isn't. And what is available to parents, especially like I know it's a picture book and it's supposed to be for kids, but picture books are for everybody. And I'm a huge advocate for even adults reading picture books, right? They're inspirational. They can, you know, they can really reach you at a level that this information packet can't you know the pictures mm-hmm. The, mm-hmm. the simple language you know and so i, I wrote this book uh, specifically about diagnosis day and moving forward like what life like is like after that as a parent you know mm-hmm. so it's not your typical kids book it's not a real soft and like funny or whatever cute like it's a serious book and it's something that i would advise like if you're going to read it like to a kid like kind of proper beforehand and like my nephew when he saw the book my sister bought it and didn't tell him. So when you the Amazon packet and you open the book, he, there's a baby in an incubator with wires on the baby. He throws the book across the <laughs> room. He's kind of freaked out, right? He didn't know what that was. So, yeah. but it's, so it's just, I did a book, like I said, just because it's an easier resource and you can give it as a gift. Like mm-hmm. if you have, a lot of people are like, well, we don't know how to help you. We don't know how to talk to you. We don't. So you can gift it a lot to somebody with a a care package or something like, you know, Mm -hmm. some food or gift card, because that's Mm -hmm. the thing to like, you kind of shut down. So like, how can you help? Oh, you can provide meals, you can come over and clean, you can wash the other kids. So how do you help somebody? You know, this is one way you can offer them a resource. Now, I struggle with the title because gift from God is very specific and a lot of people are not religious, right? Mm -hmm. But I can only talk from my area of expertise and what I know to be true and things that have helped me. And God was a big part of that. You know, if I didn't have him, I don't know if I'd have the hope that I carry within me from what I saw in know for the future, you know? And so I didn't want to not put that because that was advised. And that's why it was not um, published by a publishing house. It was just too, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's, uh, polarizing.
2: Yep. It's yep.
1: Polarizing. Um, and so I just decided to self publish because I, I still thought it was worth putting out there. Yeah. Whoever needs it will benefit from it. You know, yeah. And so that's how that came to be. I wrote a second book and I've sent it out to different two different publishing um, agencies. I've sent it out to more, but two have pending pending responses. You get a lot of rejections. I don't know if anyone <laughs> wants to publish, like you get you gotta be able to handle rejection. Yeah. All right. And you get to go back, you know, and fix your work and, and you know, not just be all offended and like, well, fine, forget you. You, know, you right. look for the value of what they're saying and modify if need be. Right. So my other one's Jacob's Wish. It's also gonna be a picture book. Um, And that's about wishing away my son. And I wrote about my son. So even though it's fictional, but like, it's based upon true life, you know, experiences here about this kid trying to wish away his disability, because who in life doesn't have stuff about themselves? They don't like, Like Mm but I like bigger boobs. If I could, I get a, you know, you know, bigger boobs. I, you know, it's just (laughs) not in my cards, but we all have things about ourselves that we like to change. So, um, and my son is that he wants to walk and with the autism, cause he's also autistic. It's hard to rationalize with him and get him to understand. Like he just thinks that if he gets bigger, if he gets older, he'll be able to walk. Now I didn't put mm. that in the book. The point is this kid is trying to wish away his disabilities. He makes great wishes. It doesn't come true. So how do we help him to gain independence again? that he craves? just a power wheelchair. So the trying to sell that, it's like, again, not your like, you know, really cutesy book. It's not, yeah. so that, I'm yeah. struggling with getting people to like, to bite onto this. Um, but I'm, I'm working on it. So it's out there. It's done. Let's kind of see, you know.
0: Are you doing the art as well?
1: I am not. So I hired the artist. That was hard because, you know, art is not cheap. You want quality, yeah. you're going to have to pay for it. Yeah. And so I went um, wanted finding a lady. I don't know if she was from Hungary. She was from somewhere overseas and wanted up doing it for me. And she did a great job, very simple because I wanted to keep simple, you know, mm-hmm. just like the words. But the other one I'd really like to go through uh, a publishing house. Yep. I think, um, that'd be the the best for this second book, you know,
0: what more you, wide stream. What do you get out of it? Um, besides the greater reach, uh, that you wouldn't get from an article, is it, is it literally just knowing that it's going to kind of get mainlined into someone a little bit easier because of the format? Um, or is there something else that you get out of it that when you complete writing it, there's a sense of satisfaction, like you've fully fleshed out. Something that you wanted to say in a way that maybe you couldn't in an article.
1: There is there is satisfaction, of course, in writing a book. Um, but I I am a huge picture book addict. Like my mom, like I said, my mom read to us when we were kids. I read to both my kids. Mm. Like there's a lot to be gained from reading in general at a young age. And I feel like some of the battles we've had when we talk about advocacy for my kids in school and with their peers and stuff is because of lack of knowledge, lack of exposure. And when you look at picture books in particular, there aren't a whole lot to talk about disability. And if they are, it's very non-specific, like, oh, we're all different. We should all just love each other, you know? Mm, But it's not mm -hmm. talking about real problems that kids with disabilities face, like self-acceptance. And, like, they Mm. do, like, they always portray children, not always, a vast majority of books, excuse me, will portray children with disabilities as being happy and loving themselves and, like, don't call me special. And I can do it myself. And Mm. that's not always the case. There are a lot of kids who struggle with, not being able to walk, not being able to don't have hands or, you know, whatever their disability is. Right. And it's, it's a disservice to them to not address those things and to not make their peers aware of that. And maybe a little more, like I was saying, I I, I became more compassionate as I was exposed to this. You're going to have these kids in their class, you know, I mean, they need to be exposed to this kind of stuff, you know, (laughs) to make them more compassionate at a younger age. Again, I only ever seen an adult in a wheelchair on the street when I was growing up. Yeah. Didn't have anybody in my classes, but now my kids are in these classes. So I saw a need. And I want to meet the need, essentially, in this regard.
0: And that's the best vehicle to do it is through a picture right. book, probably. Yeah, yeah, right. That's that's not crazy at all, um, Lori. This is uh, God. I, you know, I've said before to guess. Hey, I laughed. I cried. I, I really have laughed and cried uh, on this. This is this has been like a full spectrum. Uh, interview. Um, this has been a blast. Uh, we we got to do this. I know you've been on the show before, but we, we I feel like I can always have you back on. There's so much to talk about, and um, it's always a blast. Tell everybody where they can follow you, see what you're up to, all your links, all that stuff. What what should sure. people be? How should they be keeping in touch with you?
1: Well, primarily I use Instagram. I have Twitter and I have LinkedIn, but honestly, like I I don't use them so much. But Instagram is the best place to get in contact with me. And that's just my name, Lori L O R I underscore Butaris B U T I E R R I E S. So that's where you can find me on Instagram. is public, so if you don't want me to follow you back, no worries. Um, but I am there. So, and I just like I said, write about my life. <laughs> Nothing specific. You won't see me workout videos and stuff on there, but you will see other things.
0: <laughs> it's a it's a hell of a feed. I, I I see your stuff and it's um it is incredible. Hey, this is fun. Let's do this again at some point. And it's always great talk.
1: It was fun. Thank you so much. I appreciate it.
0: That was Lori Boutier's profile in havoc, man. I enjoyed that. I really hope you guys did as well. Um, one of my favorite conversations. Uh, I, I really can't wait to see what Lori does next and how she, I don't know, unspools some of these experiences uh, and, and what form that takes, whether it's nonfiction fiction, children's books, uh, God forbid, plays. I don't know. Um, I'd love, just love to see what she does because uh, I think there is so much there. And um, yeah, I think it's worth worth uh, hearing more from her about uh, when she has the time and bandwidth to talk about it. So excited to see what that will look like. Okay, at the top of this episode, I talked about one of our episode sponsors, Second Mission Foundation. I want to take a second and talk about. The other sponsor of this week's episode, Veterans Repertory Theater. So Veterans Repertory Theater exists to provide a platform for talented veterans to create compelling live theater and events in order to enhance and and invigorate American theater and the live performance arts. That obviously is my nonprofit, so it's near and dear to my heart, and I won't filibuster for too long, about why we exist because at this point probably you guys are all tracking but the short version is that we are trying to bring more and more veterans into american theater and the live performance arts which have become um kind of a uh i don't know a very provincial art form you know done really only in certain cities and only by certain people and not really something that is um captures the whole of america and uh you know, I think veterans offer a uh, an immense amount, uh, like Lori, they offer an immense amount of experiential wisdom, knowledge um, that it, that makes for great writing, great theater, great drama, and great live performances. Um, if they're talented, if they're talented at telling those stories and getting them out, or finding the right way to tell those stories, uh, like at the beginning of the episode when I talked about Mel Brooks, right? Finding that right path to tell the stories that uh, could otherwise have just been very straightforward and dramatic, but he turned them into comedy. So I think the veteran community has a, can offer an awful lot to the culture. And I think it's important to put veterans into the culture for that purpose. I think, as we all know, everything in American life, everything in any life is downstream of culture. The culture dictates politics, religion, personal interactions. um, You know, everything comes from culture. So, Um, Putting, inserting more veterans into culture, I think is just good for the country. I think it's, it's a shame to waste the experiential wisdom that veterans have fought and bled for in their own lives and not have that filter back into society through an artistic medium. So anything else you want to know about vet rep, any other backstory explanation, or just to track all the different lines of efforts we have going on from our weekly parlor shows up in cornwall new york just outside the gates of west point or our savage Wonderground events november 11th in beautiful old town alexandria at the principal gallery um any of that stuff go to vetrep.org and you can find out all about it vetrep.org v e t r e p.org vetrep.org find out everything that we have going on um we would love you guys to be involved and check us out and see what we're up to. Okay. That is, I think all the shameless plugging I really need to do. Um, Obviously, if you're listening to us on iTunes, we always deeply appreciate five-star reviews, say whatever you want to us questions, comments, snide remarks. But if you can attach it to a five-star review, that means a lot. As always, thanks to our producer, Mike Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. My thanks again to Lori Gutierrez, And we'll see you next time for another Profile in Havoc.